0: Chapter Eleven of the Lost World. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eleven. For once, I was the hero. Lord John Roxton was right when he thought that some specially toxic quality might lie in the bite of the horrible creatures which had attacked us. On the morning after our first adventure upon the plateau, both Summerlee and I were in great pain and fever while Challenger's knee was so bruised that he could hardly limp. We kept to our camp all day, therefore, Lord John busying himself, with such help as we could give him, in raising the height and thickness of the thorny walls which were our only defence. I remember that during the whole long day I was haunted by the feeling that we were closely observed, though by whom, or whence, I could give no guess. So strong was the impression that I told Professor Challenger of it, who put it down to the cerebral excitement caused by my fever. Again and again I glanced round swiftly, with the conviction that I was about to see something, but only to meet the dark tangle of our hedge or the solemn and cavernous gloom of the great trees which arched above our heads. And yet the feeling grew ever stronger in my own mind that something observant, and something malevolent was at our very elbow. I thought of the Indian superstition of the Kurupuri, the dreadful, lurking spirit of the woods, and I could have imagined that his terrible presence haunted those who had invaded his most remote and sacred retreat. That night, our third in Maple-White land, we had an experience which left a fearful impression upon our minds. And made us thankful that Lord john had worked so hard in making our retreat impregnable. We were all sleeping round our dying fire, when we were aroused, or rather, I should say, shot out of our slumbers, by a succession of the most frightful cries and screams to which I have ever listened. I know no sound to which I could compare this amazing tumult, which seemed to come from some spot within a few hundred yards of our camp. It was as ear-splitting as any whistle of a railway engine, but whereas the whistle is a clear, mechanical, sharp-edged sound, this was far deeper in volume, and vibrant with the uttermost strain of agony and horror. We clapped our hands to our ears to shut out that nerve-shaking appeal. A cold sweat broke out over my body, and my heart turned sick at the misery of it. All the woes of tortured life, all its stupendous indictment of high heaven, its innumerable sorrows, seemed to be centred and condensed into that one dreadful agonized cry. And then, under this high-pitched ringing sound, there was another, more intermittent, a low, deep-chested laugh, a growling, throaty gurgle of merriment, which formed a grotesque accompaniment to the shriek with which it was blended. For three or four minutes on end, the fearsome duet continued while all the foliage rustled with the rising of startled birds. Then it shut off as suddenly as it began for a long time. We sat in horrified silence. then Lord John threw a bundle of twigs upon the fire, and the red glare lit up the intent faces of my companions and flickered over the great boughs above our heads. What was it? I whispered. "'We shall know in the morning,' said Lord John. "'It was close to us, not farther than the glade. We have been privileged to overhear a prehistoric tragedy—the sort of drama which occurred among the reeds upon the border of some Jurassic lagoon, when the greater dragon pinned the lesser among the slime,' said Challenger, with more solemnity than I had ever heard in his voice. It was surely well for man that he came late in the order of creation. There were powers abroad in earlier days which no courage and no mechanism of his could have met. What could his sling, his throwing-stick, or his arrow avail him against such forces as have been loose to-night? Even with a modern rifle it would be all odds on the monster. I think we should back my little friend." said Lord John, caressing his express, but the beast would certainly have a good sporting chance. Summerlee raised his hand. "'Hush!' he cried. "'Surely I hear something?' From the utter silence there emerged a deep regular pat-pat. It was the tread of some animal, the rhythm of soft but heavy pads placed cautiously upon the ground. It stole slowly round the camp and then halted near our gateway. There was a low, sibilant rise and fall, the breathing of the creature. Only our feeble hedge separated us from this horror of the night. Each of us had seized his rifle, and Lord John had pulled out a small bush to make an embrasure in the hedge. "'By George!' he whispered. "'I think I can see it.' I stooped and peered over his shoulder through the gap. Yes. I could see it too. In the deep shadow of the tree there was a deeper shadow yet—black, inchoate, vague, a crouching form, full of savage vigour and menace. It was no higher than a horse, but the dim outline suggested vast bulk and strength. That hissing pant, as regular and full-volumed as the exhaust of an engine, spoke of a monstrous organism. Once, as it moved, I thought I saw the glint of two terrible greenish eyes. There was an uneasy rustling, as if it were crawling slowly forward. "'I believe it is going to spring,' said I, cocking my rifle. "'Don't fire! Don't fire!' whispered Lord John. "'The crash of a gun in this silent night would be heard for miles. Keep it as a last card.' "'If it gets over the hedge, we're done,' said Summerley, and his voice crackled into a nervous laugh as he spoke. "'No, it must not get over,' cried Lord John, "'but hold your fire to the last. Perhaps I can make something of the fellow. I'll chance it, anyhow.' It was as brave an act as ever I saw a man do. He stooped to the fire, picked up a blazing branch, And slipped in an instant through a sally-port which he had made in our gateway. The thing moved forward with a dreadful snarl. Lord John never hesitated, but running towards it with a quick light step, he dashed the flaming wood into the brute's face. For one moment I had a vision of a horrible mask like a giant toad's, of a warty leprous skin, and a loose mouth all beslobbered with fresh blood. The next, there was a crash in the Underwood, and our dreadful visitor was gone." "'I thought he wouldn't face the fire,' said Lord John, laughing, as he came back and threw his branch among the faggots. "'You should not have taken such a risk,' we all cried. There was nothing else to be done. If he had got among us, we should have shot each other in trying to down him. On the other hand, if we had fired through the hedge and wounded him." he would soon have been on the top of us, to say nothing of giving ourselves away. On the whole, I think that we are jolly well out of it. What was he, then?" Our learned men looked at each other with some hesitation. "'Personally, I am unable to classify the creature with any certainty,' said Summerlee, lighting his pipe from the fire. "'In refusing to commit yourself, you are but showing a proper scientific reserve, said challenger, with massive condescension. I am not myself prepared to go farther than to say, in general terms, that we have almost certainly been in contact to-night with some form of carnivorous dinosaur. I have already expressed my anticipation that something of the sort might exist upon this plateau. We have to bear in mind remarked Summerlee, that there are many prehistoric forms which have never come down to us. It would be rash to suppose that we can give a name to all that we are likely to meet. Exactly. A rough classification may be the best that we can attempt. Tomorrow, some further evidence may help us to an identification. Meantime, we can only renew our interrupted slumbers." But not without a sentinel, said Lord John, with decision. We can't afford to take chances in a country like this. Two-hour spells in the future, for each of us. Then I'll just finish my pipe in starting the first one, said Professor Summerlee. And from that time onwards, we never trusted ourselves again without a watchman. In the morning, it was not long before we discovered the source of the hideous uproar which had aroused us in the night the adanaguan glade was the scene of a horrible butchery. from the pools of blood and the enormous lumps of flesh scattered in every direction over the green sward we imagined at first that a number of animals had been killed but on examining the remains more closely we discovered that all this carnage came from one of those unwieldy monsters which had been literally torn to pieces by some creature not larger, perhaps, but far more ferocious than itself. Our two professors sat in absorbed argument, examining piece after piece, which showed the marks of savage teeth, and of enormous claws." "'Our judgment must still be in abeyance,' said Professor Challenger, with a huge slab of whitish-coloured flesh across his knee the indications would be consistent with the presence of a saber-toothed tiger, such as are still found among the Brescia of our caverns. But the creature actually seen was undoubtedly of a larger and more reptilian character. Personally, I should pronounce for Allosaurus. Or Megalosaurus, said Summerlee. Exactly. Any one of the large carnivorous dinosaurs would meet the case. Among them are to be found all the most terrible types of animal life that have ever cursed the earth or blessed a museum. He laughed sonorously at his own conceit, for, though he had little sense of humour, the crudest pleasantry from his own lips moved him always to roars of appreciation. "'The less noise, the better,' said Lord Roxton, curtly. "'We don't know who or what may be near us.' "'If this fellow comes back for his breakfast, and catches us here, we won't have so much to laugh at. By the way, what is this mark upon the Iguanodon's hide?' On the dull, scaly, slate-coloured skin somewhere above the shoulder, there was a singular black circle of some substance, which looked like asphalt. None of us could suggest what it meant.' though Summerlee was of opinion that he had seen something similar upon one of the young ones two days before. Challenger said nothing, but looked pompous and puffy, as if he could if he would, so that finally Lord John asked his opinion direct. "'If your lordship will graciously permit me to open my mouth, I shall be happy to express my sentiments,' said he with elaborate sarcasm i am not in the habit of being taken to task in the fashion which seems to be customary with your lordship i was not aware that it was necessary to ask your permission before smiling at a harmless pleasantry it was not until he had received his apology that our touchy friend would suffer himself to be appeased when at last his ruffled feelings were at ease he addressed us at some length from his seat upon a fallen tree speaking, as his habit was, as if he were imparting most precious information to a class of a thousand. With regard to the marking, said he, I am inclined to agree with my friend and colleague Professor Summerlee, that the stains are from asphalt. As this plateau is in its very nature highly volcanic, and as asphalt is a substance which one associates with plutonic forces, I cannot doubt that it exists in the free liquid state, and that the creatures may have come in contact with it. A much more important problem is the question as to the existence of the carnivorous monster which has left its traces in this glade. We know, roughly, that this plateau is not larger than an average English county, Within this confined space, a certain number of creatures, mostly types which had passed away in the world below, have lived together for innumerable years. Now, it is very clear to me that in so long a period one would have expected that the carnivorous creatures, multiplying unchecked, would have exhausted their food supply, and have been compelled to either modify their flesh-eating habits, or die of hunger. This, we see, has not been so. We can only imagine, therefore, that the balance of nature is preserved by some check which limits the numbers of these ferocious creatures. One of the many interesting problems, therefore, which await our solution, is to discover what that check may be, and how it operates. "'I venture to trust that we may have some future opportunity for the closer study of the carnivorous dinosaurs.' "'And I venture to trust we may not?' I observed. The professor only raised his great eyebrows as the schoolmaster meets the irrelevant observation of the naughty boy. "'Perhaps Professor Summerlee may have an observation to make,' he said. And the two savants ascended together into some rarefied scientific atmosphere, where the possibilities of a modification of the birth-rate were weighed against the decline of the food supply as a check in the struggle for existence. That morning we mapped out a small portion of the plateau, avoiding the swamp of the pterodactyls, and keeping to the east of our brook instead of to the west. In that direction the country was still thickly wooded with so much undergrowth, that our progress was very slow. I have dwelt up to now upon the terrors of maple-white land, but there was another side to the subject, for all that morning we wandered among lovely flowers, mostly, as I observed, white or yellow in colour, these being, as our professors explained, the primitive flower-shades. In many places the ground was absolutely covered with them and as we walked ankle-deep on that wonderful yielding carpet the scent was almost intoxicating in its sweetness and intensity the homely english bee buzzed everywhere around us many of the trees under which we passed had their branches bowed down with fruit some of which were of familiar sorts while other varieties were new by observing which of them were pecked by birds we avoided all danger of poison And added a delicious variety to our food reserve. In the jungle which we traversed were numerous hard-trodden paths made by the wild beasts, and in the more marshy places we saw a profusion of strange footmarks, including many of the iguanodon. Once in a grove we observed several of these great creatures grazing, and Lord John, with his glass, was able to report that they also were spotted with asphalt. Though in a different place to the one which we had examined in the morning. What this phenomenon meant we could not imagine. We saw many small animals, such as porcupines, a scaly ant eater, and a wild pig piebald in colour and with long curved tusks. Once, through a break in the trees, we saw a clear shoulder of green hill some distance away, and across this a large, dun-coloured animal was travelling at a considerable pace. It passed so swiftly that we were unable to say what it was, but if it were a deer, as was claimed by Lord John, it must have been as large as those monstrous Irish elk which are still dug up from time to time in the bogs of my native land. Ever since the mysterious visit which had been paid to our camp, we always returned to it with some misgivings. However, on this occasion, we found everything in order. That evening we had a grand discussion upon our present situation and future plans, which I must describe at some length, as it led to a new departure by which we were enabled to gain a more complete knowledge of Maple-White land than might have come in many weeks of exploring it. It was Summerlee who opened the debate. All day he had been querulous in manner, and now some remark of lord john's as to what we should do on the morrow brought all his bitterness to a head what we ought to be doing to-day to-morrow and all the time said he is finding some way out of the trap into which we have fallen you are all turning your brains towards getting into this country i say that we should be scheming how to get out of it i am surprised sir Boomed Challenger, stroking his majestic beard, that any man of science should commit himself to so ignoble a sentiment. You are in a land which offers such an inducement to the ambitious naturalist as none ever has since the world began. And you suggest leaving it before we have acquired more than the most superficial knowledge of it or of its contents. I expected better things of you, Professor Summerley. "'You must remember,' said Summerlee, sourly, "'that I have a large class in London who are at present at the mercy of an extremely inefficient locum tenens. This makes my situation different from yours, Professor Challenger, since, so far as I know, you have never been entrusted with any responsible educational work.' "'Quite so,' said Challenger. "'I have felt it to be a sacrilege to divert a brain which is capable of the highest original research to any lesser object. That is why I have sternly set my face against any proffered scholastic appointment.' "'For example?' asked Summerlee, with a sneer. But Lord John hastened to change the conversation. "'I must say,' said he, That I think it would be a mighty poor thing to go back to London before I know a great deal more of this place than I do at present. I could never dare to walk into the back office of my paper and face old MacArdle, said I. You will excuse the frankness of this report, will you not, sir? He'd never forgive me for leaving such unexhausted copy behind me. Besides, so far as I can see, it is not worth discussing, since we can't get down even if we wanted. Our young friend makes up for many obvious mental lacunae by some measure of primitive common sense," remarked Challenger. The interests of his deplorable profession are immaterial to us, but as he observes, we cannot get down in any case, so it is a waste of energy to discuss it. It is a waste of energy to do anything else, growled Summerlee from behind his pipe. Let me remind you that we came here upon a perfectly definite mission entrusted to us at the meeting of the Zoological Institute in London. That mission was to test the truth of Professor Challenge's statements. Those statements, as I am bound to admit, we are now in a position to endorse. Our ostensible work is therefore done. As to the detail which remains to be worked out upon this plateau, It is so enormous, that only a large expedition, with a very special equipment, could hope to cope with it. Should we attempt to do so ourselves, the only possible result must be that we shall never return with the important contribution to science which we have already gained. Professor Challenger has devised means for getting us onto this plateau, when it appeared to be inaccessible i think that we should now call upon him to use the same ingenuity in getting us back to the world from which we came i confess that as summerlee stated his view it struck me as altogether reasonable even challenger was affected by the consideration that his enemies would never stand confuted if the confirmation of his statements should never reach those who had doubted them the problem of the dissent is at first sight a formidable one said he, and yet I cannot doubt that the intellect can solve it. I am prepared to agree with our colleague that a protracted stay in Maple-White Land is at present inadvisable, and that the question of our return will soon have to be faced. I absolutely refuse to leave, however, until we have made at least a superficial examination of this country and are able to take back with us something in the nature of a chart." Professor Summerlee gave a snort of impatience. "'We have spent two long days in exploration,' said he, "'and we are no wiser as to the actual geography of the place than when we started. It is clear that it is all thickly wooded, and it would take months to penetrate it, and to learn the relations of one part to another.' if there were some central peak it would be different but it all slopes downwards so far as we can see the farther we go the less likely it is that we will get any general view it was at that moment that i had my inspiration my eyes chanced to light upon the enormous gnarled trunk of the ginkgo tree which cast its huge branches over us surely if its bowl exceeded that of all others, its height must do the same. If the rim of the plateau was indeed the highest point, then why should this mighty tree not prove to be a watch-tower which commanded the whole country? Now, ever since I ran wild as a lad in Ireland, I have been a bold and skilled tree-climber. My comrades might be my masters on the rocks, but I knew that I would be supreme among those branches." could I only get my legs on to the lowest of the giant offshoots, then it would be strange indeed if I could not make my way to the top. My comrades were delighted at my idea. "'Our young friend,' said Challenger, bunching up the red apples of his cheeks, is capable of acrobatic exertions which would be impossible to a man of more solid, though possibly of more commanding, appearance. I applaud his resolution.' "'By George, young fellow, you've put your hand on it,' said Lord John, clapping me on the back. "'How we never came to think of it before, I can't imagine. There's not more than an hour of daylight left, but if you take your notebook you may be able to get some rough sketch of the place. If we put these three ammunition cases under the branch, I will soon host you on to it.' He stood on the boxes, while I faced the trunk, and was gently raising me when Challenger sprang forward, and gave me such a thrust with his huge hand that he fairly shot me into the tree. With both arms clasping the branch, I scrambled hard with my feet, until I had worked first my body and then my knees onto it. There were three excellent offshoots, like huge rungs of a ladder above my head, and a tangle of convenient branches beyond, so that I clambered onwards with such speed, that I soon lost sight of the ground, and had nothing but foliage beneath me. Now and then I entered a check, and once I had to shin up a creeper for eight or ten feet, but I made excellent progress, and the booming of Challenger's voice seemed to be a great distance beneath me. The tree was, however, enormous, and looking upwards, I could see no thinning of the leaves above my head. There was some thick bush like clump which seemed to be a parasite upon the branch up which I was swarming. I leaned my head round it in order to see what was beyond, and I nearly fell out of the tree in my surprise and horror at what I saw. A face was gazing into mine, at the distance of only a foot or two. The creature that owned it had been crouching behind the parasite. And had looked round it at the same instant that I did. It was a human face, or at least it was far more human than any monkey's that I have ever seen. It was long, whitish, and blotched with pimples, the nose flattened, and the lower jaw projecting, with a bristle of coarse whiskers round the chin. The eyes, which were under thick and heavy brows, were bestial and ferocious, and as it opened its mouth to snarl what sounded like a curse at me, I observed that it had curved sharp canine teeth. For an instant I read hatred and menace in the evil eyes. Then, as quick as a flash, came an expression of overpowering fear. There was a crash of broken boughs as it dived wildly down into the tangle of green. I caught a glimpse of a hairy body like that of a reddish pig, and then it was gone amid a swirl of leaves and branches. "'What's the matter?' shouted Roxton from below. "'Anything wrong with you?' "'Did you see it?' I cried, with my arms round the branch, and all my nerves tingling. "'We heard a row, as if your foot had slipped. What was it?' I was so shocked at the sudden and strange appearance of this ape-man, That I hesitated whether I should not climb down again and tell my experience to my companions, but I was already so far up the great tree that it seemed a humiliation to return without having carried out my mission. After a long pause, therefore, to recover my breath and my courage, I continued my ascent. Once I put my weight upon a rotten branch and swung for a few seconds by my hands, but in the main it was all easy climbing. Gradually the leaves thinned around me, and I was aware, from the wind upon my face, that I had topped all the trees of the forest. I was determined, however, not to look about me before I had reached the very highest point, so I scrambled on, until I had got so far, that the topmost branch was bending beneath my weight. There I settled into a convenient fork, and balancing myself securely, I found myself looking down at a most wonderful panorama of this strange country in which we found ourselves. The sun was just above the western skyline, and the evening was a particularly bright and clear one, so that the whole extent of the plateau was visible beneath me. It was, as seen from this height, of an oval contour, with a breadth of about thirty miles and a width of twenty. Its general shape was that of a shallow funnel, All the sides sloping down to a considerable lake in the centre. This lake may have been ten miles in circumference, and lay very green and beautiful in the evening light, with a thick fringe of reeds at its edges, and with its surface broken by several yellow sandbanks, which gleamed golden in the mellow sunshine. A number of long dark objects, which were too large for alligators and too long for canoes, lay upon the edges of these patches of sand. With my glass, I could clearly see that they were alive, but what their nature might be I could not imagine. From the side of the plateau on which we were, slopes of woodland, with occasional glades, stretched down for five or six miles to the central lake. I could see at my very feet the glade of the Iguanodons, and farther off was a round opening in the trees, which marked the swamp of the pterodactyls. On the side facing me, however, the plateau presented a very different aspect. There, the basalt cliffs of the outside were reproduced upon the inside, forming an escarpment about two hundred feet high, with a woody slope beneath it. Along the base of these red cliffs, some distance above the ground, I could see a number of dark holes through the glass, which I conjectured to be the mouths of caves. At the opening of one of these something white was shimmering, but I was unable to make out what it was. I sat charting the country until the sun had set, and it was so dark that I could no longer distinguish details. Then I climbed down to my companions, waiting for me so eagerly at the bottom of the great tree. For once I was the hero of the expedition. Alone I had thought of it, and alone I had done it and here was the chart which would save us a month's blind groping among unknown dangers. Each of them shook me solemnly by the hand. But before they discussed the details of my map, I had to tell them of my encounter with the ape-man among the branches. "'He has been there all the time,' said I. "'How do you know that?' asked Lord John. "'Because I have never been without that feeling that something malevolent was watching us, I mentioned it to you, Professor Challenger. Our young friend certainly said something of the kind. He is also the one among us who is endowed with that Celtic temperament which would make him sensitive to such impressions." "'The whole theory of telepathy,' began Summerlee, filling his pipe, "'is too vast to be now discussed,' said Challenger, with decision. "'Tell me now,' he added with the air of a bishop addressing a Sunday-school. Did you happen to observe whether the creature could cross its thumb over its palm? No, indeed. Had it a tail? No. Was the foot prehensile? I do not think it could have made off so fast among the branches if it could not get a grip with its feet. In South America there are, if my memory serves me you will check the observation professor summerlee some thirty-six species of monkeys but the anthropoid ape is unknown it is clear however that he exists in this country and that he is not the hairy gorilla-like variety which is never seen out of africa or the east i was inclined to interpolate as i looked at him that i had seen his first cousin in kensington this is a whiskered and colourless type The latter characteristic pointing to the fact that he spends his days in arboreal seclusion. The question which we have to face is whether he approaches more closely to the ape or the man. In the latter case, he may well approximate to what the vulgar have called the missing link. The solution of this problem is our immediate duty. It is nothing of the sort, said Summerlee abruptly. Now that through the intelligence and activity of Mr. Malone, I cannot help quoting the words, we have got our chart. Our one and only immediate duty is to get ourselves safe and sound out of this awful place. The flesh-pots of civilization," groaned Challenger. The ink-pots of civilization, sir. It is our task to put on record what we have seen, and to leave the further exploration to others you all agreed as much before mr malone got us the chart well said challenger i admit that my mind will be more at ease when i am assured that the result of our expedition has been conveyed to our friends how we are to get down from this place i have not as yet an idea i have never yet encountered a problem however which my inventive brain was unable to solve and i promise you that to-morrow I will turn my attention to the question of our descent. And so the matter was allowed to rest. But that evening, by the light of the fire and of a single candle, the first map of the lost world was elaborated. Every detail which I had roughly noted from my watch-tower was drawn out in its relative place. The challenger's pencil hovered over the great blank which marked the lake. "'What shall we call it?' he asked. "'Why should you not take the chance of perpetuating your own name?' said Summerlee, with his usual touch of acidity. "'I trust, sir, that my name will have other and more personal claims upon posterity,' said Challenger, severely. "'Any ignoramus can hand down his worthless memory by imposing it upon a mountain or a river. I need no such monument.' Summerley, with a twisted smile was about to make some fresh assault when lord john hastened to intervene some to you young fellow to name the lake said he you saw it first and by george if you choose to put lake malone on it no one has a better right by all means let our young friend give it a name said challenger then said i blushing i dare say as i said it let it be named Lake Gladys.' "'Don't you think the Central Lake would be more descriptive?' remarked Summerlee. "'I should prefer Lake Gladys.' Challenger looked at me sympathetically, and shook his great head in mock disapproval. "'Boys will be boys,' said he. "'Lake Gladys, let it be.'"
1: End of Chapter 11
0: Chapter twelve of the Lost World. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter twelve. It was dreadful in the forest. I have said-or perhaps I have not said, for my memory plays me sad tricks these days-that I glowed with pride when three such men as my comrades thanked me for having saved, or at least greatly helped, the situation. As the youngster of the party, not merely in years, but in experience, character, knowledge, and all that goes to make a man, I had been overshadowed from the first. And now, I was coming into my own. I warmed at the thought. Alas! for the pride which goes before a fall! That little glow of self-satisfaction, that added measure of self-confidence, were to lead me, on that very night, to the most dreadful experience of my life, ending with a shock which turns my heart sick when I think of it. It came about in this way. I had been unduly excited by the adventure of the tree, and sleep seemed to be impossible. Summerlee was on guard, sitting hunched over our small fire, a quaint, angular figure, his rifle across his knees, and his pointed, goat-like beard wagging with each weary nod of his head. Lord John lay silent, wrapped in the South American poncho which he wore, while Challenger snored with a roll and rattle which reverberated through the woods. The full moon was shining brightly, and the air was crisply cold. What a night for a walk! And then suddenly came the thought, Why not? Suppose I stole softly away, suppose I made my way down to the central lake, suppose I was back at breakfast with some record of the place, would I not, in that case, be thought an even more worthy associate? Then, if Summerlee carried the day, and some means of escape were found, we should return to London with first-hand knowledge of the central mystery of the plateau, to which I alone, of all men, would have penetrated. I thought of Gladys, with her, There are heroisms all around us. I seemed to hear her voice as she said it. I thought also of McCardle. What a three-column article for the paper! What a foundation for a career! A correspondentship in the next great war might be within my reach. I clutched at a gun-my pockets were full of cartridges-and, parting the thorn bushes at the gate of our Zareba, quickly slipped out. My last glance showed me the unconscious Summerlee, most futile of Sentinels, still nodding away like a queer mechanical toy in front of the smouldering fire. I had not gone a hundred yards before I deeply repented my rashness. I may have said somewhere in this chronicle that I am too imaginative to be a really courageous man, but that I have an overpowering fear of seeming afraid. This was the power which now carried me onwards. I simply could not slink back with nothing done. Even if my comrades should not have missed me, and should never know of my weakness, there would still remain some intolerable self-shame in my own soul. And yet, I shuddered at the position in which I found myself, and would have given all I possessed at that moment to have been honourably free of the whole business. It was dreadful in the forest. The trees grew so thickly, and their foliage spread so widely, that I could see nothing of the moonlight save that here and there the high branches made a tangled filigree against the starry sky. As the eyes became more used to the obscurity, one learned that there were different degrees of darkness among the trees, that some were dimly visible. While between and among them there were cold black shadowed patches, like the mouths of caves, from which I shrank in horror as I passed. I thought of the despairing yell of the tortured iguanodon, that dreadful cry which had echoed through the woods. I thought, too, of the glimpse I had in the light of Lord John's torch of that bloated, warty, blood-slavering muzzle. Even now I was on its hunting ground at any instant it might spring upon me from the shadows, this nameless and horrible monster. I stopped, and picking a cartridge from my pocket, I opened the breech of my gun. As I touched the lever, my heart leaped within me. It was the shotgun, not the rifle which I had taken. Again, the impulse to return swept over me. Here surely was a most excellent reason for my failure, one for which no one would think the less of me. But again the foolish pride fought against that very word. I could not, must not fail. After all, my rifle would probably have been as useless as a shotgun against such dangers as I might meet. If I were to go back to camp to change my weapon, I could hardly expect to enter and leave again without being seen. In that case, there would be explanations, and my attempt would no longer be all my own. After a little hesitation, then, I screwed up my courage, and continued upon my way, my useless gun under my arm. The darkness of the forest had been alarming, but even worse was the white, still flood of moonlight in the open glade of the Iguanodons. Hid among the bushes, I looked out at it. None of the great buttes were in sight. Perhaps the tragedy which had befallen one of them had driven them from their feeding ground. In the misty, silvery night I could see no sign of any living thing. Taking courage, therefore, I slipped rapidly across it, and among the jungle on the farther side I picked up once again the brook which was my guide. It was a cheery companion, gurgling and chuckling as it ran, like the dear old trout-stream in the West Country where I have fished at night in my boyhood. So long as I followed it down, I must come to the lake, and so long as I followed it back, I must come to the camp. Often I had to lose sight of it on account of the tangled brushwood, but I was always within earshot of its tinkle and splash. As one descended the slope, the woods became thinner, and bushes, With occasional high trees, took the place of the forest. I could make good progress, therefore, and I could see without being seen. I passed close to the pterodactyl swamp, and as I did so, with a dry, crisp, leathery rattle of wings, one of these great creatures-it was twenty feet at least from tip to tip-rose up from somewhere near me and soared into the air. As it passed across the face of the moon, The light shone clearly through the membranous wings, and it looked like a flying skeleton against the white tropical radiance. I crouched low among the bushes, for I knew from past experience that, with a single cry, the creature could bring a hundred of its loathsome mates about my ears. It was not until it had settled again that I dared to steal onwards upon my journey. The night had been exceedingly still, but as I advanced, I became conscious of a low rumbling sound, a continuous murmur, somewhere in front of me. This grew louder as I proceeded, until at last it was clearly quite close to me. When I stood still, the sound was constant, so that it seemed to come from some stationary cause. It was like a boiling kettle or the bubbling of a small great pot. Soon I came upon the source of it, for in the centre of a small clearing, I found a lake, or a pool, rather, for it was not larger than the basin of the Trafalgar Square Fountain, of some black pitch-like stuff, the surface of which rose and fell in great blisters of bursting gas. The air above it was shimmering with heat, and the ground round was so hot that I could hardly bear to lay my hand upon it it was clear that the great volcanic outburst which had raised this strange plateau so many years ago had not yet entirely spent its forces. Blackened rocks and mounds of lava I had already seen everywhere peeping out from amid the luxuriant vegetation which draped them, but this asphalt pool in the jungle was the first sign that we had of actual existing activity on the slopes of the ancient crater. I had no time to examine it further, for I had need to hurry, if I were to be back in camp in the morning. It was a fearsome walk, and one which will be with me so long as memory holds. In the great moonlight clearings, I slunk along among the shadows on the margin. In the jungle I crept forward, stopping with a beating heart whenever I heard, as I often did the crash of breaking branches as some wild beast went past. Now and then great shadows loomed up for an instant, and were gone, great silent shadows, which seemed to prowl upon padded feet. How often I stopped with the intention of returning, and yet every time my pride conquered my fear, and sent me on again, until my object should be attained. At last, my watch showed that it was one in the morning, I saw the gleam of water amid the openings of the jungle, and ten minutes later I was among the reeds upon the borders of the central lake. I was exceedingly dry, so I lay down and took a long draught of its waters, which were fresh and cold. There was a broad pathway with many tracks upon it at the spot which I had found, so that it was clearly one of the drinking-places of the animals. Close to the water's edge, there was a huge isolated block of lava. Up this I climbed, and lying on the top, I had an excellent view in every direction. The first thing which I saw filled me with amazement. When I described the view from the summit of the great tree, I said that on the farther cliff I could see a number of dark spots, which appeared to be the mouths of caves. Now, as I looked up at the same cliffs, I saw disks of light in every direction, ruddy, clearly defined patches, like the portholes of a liner in the darkness. For a moment I thought it was the lava glow from some volcanic action, but this could not be so. Any volcanic action would surely be down in the hollow, and not high among the rocks. What then was the alternative? It was wonderful, and yet it must surely be. These ruddy spots must be the reflection of fires within the caves, fires which could only be lit by the hand of man. There were human beings then upon the plateau. How gloriously my expedition was justified! Here was news indeed for us to bear back with us to London. For a long time I lay and watched these red quivering blotches of light. I suppose they were ten miles off from me, yet even at that distance one could observe how, from time to time, they twinkled or were obscured as someone passed before them. What would I not have given to be able to crawl up to them, to peep in, and to take back some word to my comrades, as to the appearance and character of the race who lived in so strange a place? It was out of the question for the moment, and yet— surely we could not leave the plateau until we had some definite knowledge upon the point lake gladys my own lake lay like a sheet of quicksilver before me with a reflected moon shining brightly in the centre of it it was shallow for in many places i saw low sandbanks protruding above the water everywhere upon the still surface i could see signs of life sometimes mere rings and ripples in the water Sometimes the gleam of a great silver sided fish in the air, sometimes the arched, slate covered back of some passing monster. Once upon a yellow sandbank I saw a creature like a huge swan, with a clumsy body and a high flexible neck, shuffling about upon the margin. Presently it plunged in, and for some time I could see the arched neck and darting head undulating above the water. Then it dived and I saw it no more. My attention was soon drawn away from these distant sights, and brought back to what was going on at my very feet. Two creatures, like large armadillos, had come down to the drinking-place, and were squatting at the edge of the river, their long, flexible tongues, like red ribbons, shooting in and out as they lapped. A huge deer, with branching horns, a magnificent creature, which carried itself like a king, came down with its doe and two fawns, and drank beside the armadillos. No such deer exists anywhere else upon the earth, for the moose or elks which I have seen would hardly have reached its shoulders. Presently it gave a warning snort, and was off with its family among the reeds, while the armadillos also scuttled for shelter. A new-comer, a most monstrous animal, was coming down the path. For a moment, for a moment, I wondered where I could have seen that ungainly shape, that arched back with triangular fringes along it, that strange bird-like head held close to the ground. Then it came back to me. It was the Stegosaurus, the very creature which Maple White had preserved in his sketch-book, and which had been the first object which arrested the attention of Challenger. There he was perhaps the very specimen which the American artist had encountered. The ground shook beneath his tremendous weight, and his gulpings of water resounded through the still night. For five minutes he was so close to my rock, that by stretching out my hand I could have touched the hideous waving hackles upon his back. Then he lumbered away, and was lost among the boulders. Looking at my watch, I saw that it was half past two o'clock, and high time, therefore, that I started upon my homeward journey. There was no difficulty about the direction in which I should return, for all along I had kept the little brook upon my left, and it opened into the central lake within a stone's throw of the boulder upon which I had been lying. I set off, therefore, in high spirits, for I felt that I had done good work and was bringing back a fine budget of news for my companions. Foremost of all, of course, were the sight of the fiery caves, and the certainty that some troglodytic race inhabited them. But besides that, I could speak from experience of the central lake. I could testify that it was full of strange creatures, and I had seen several landforms of primeval life which we had not before encountered. I reflected, as I walked, that few men in the world could have spent a stranger night, or added more to human knowledge in the course of it. I was plodding up the slope, turning these thoughts over in my mind, and had reached a point which may have been half-way to home, when my mind was brought back to my own position by a strange noise behind me. It was something between a snore and a growl, low, deep, and exceedingly menacing. Some strange creature was evidently near me, but nothing could be seen, so I hastened more rapidly upon my way. I had traversed half a mile or so, when suddenly the sound was repeated, still behind me, but louder and more menacing than before. My heart stood still within me as it flashed across me that the beast, whatever it was, must surely be after me. My skin grew cold, and my hair rose at the thought. That these monsters should tear each other to pieces was a part of the strange struggle for existence. But that they should turn upon modern man, that they should deliberately track and hunt down the predominant human, was a staggering and fearsome thought. I remembered again the blood-beslobbered face which we had seen in the glare of Lord John's torch like some horrible vision from the deepest circle of Dante's Hell. With my knees shaking beneath me, I stood and glared with starting eyes down the moonlit path which lay behind me. All was quiet as in a dream landscape—silver clearings and the black patches of the bushes —nothing else could I see. Then, from out of the silence, imminent and threatening, there came once more that low, throaty croaking, far louder and closer than before. There could no longer be a doubt. Something was on my trail, and was closing in upon me every minute. I stood like a man paralyzed, still staring at the ground which I had traversed. Then, suddenly, I saw it. There was a movement among the bushes at the far end of the clearing which I had just traversed. A great dark shadow disengaged itself and hopped out into the clear moonlight. I say hopped advisedly, for the beast moved like a kangaroo, springing along in an erect position upon its powerful hind legs, while its front ones were held bent in front of it. It was of enormous size and power, like an erect elephant but its movements, in spite of its bulk, were exceedingly alert. For a moment, as I saw its shape, I hoped that it was an Iguanodon, which I knew to be harmless. But ignorant as I was, I soon saw that this was a very different creature. Instead of the gentle deer-shaped head of the great three-toed leaf-eater, this beast had a broad, squat, toad-like face, like that which had alarmed us in our camp his ferocious cry, and the horrible energy of his pursuit both assured me that this was surely one of the great flesh-eating dinosaurs, the most terrible beasts which have ever walked this earth. As the huge brute loped along, it drooped forward upon its forepaws, and brought its nose to the ground every twenty yards or so. It was smelling out my trail. Sometimes, for an instant, it was at fault. Then it would catch it up again, and come bounding swiftly along the path I had taken. Even now, when I think of that nightmare, the sweat breaks out upon my brow. What could I do? My useless fowling-piece was in my hand. What help could I get from that? I looked desperately round for some rock or tree, but I was in a bushy jungle with nothing higher than a sapling within sight while I knew that the creature behind me would tear down an ordinary tree as though it were a reed. My only possible chance lay in flight. I could not move swiftly over the rough broken ground, but as I looked round me in despair, I saw a well-marked hard-beaten path which ran across in front of me. We had seen several of the sort, the runs of various wild beasts, during our expeditions. Along this, I could, perhaps, hold my own, for I was a fast runner, and in excellent condition. Flinging away my useless gun, I set myself to do such a half-mile as I have never done before or since. My limbs ached, my chest heaved, I felt that my throat would burst for want of air, and yet, with that horror behind me, I ran and I ran and I ran. At last I paused, hardly able to move. For a moment I thought that I had thrown him off. The path lay still behind me, and then, suddenly, with a crashing and a rending, a thudding of giant feet and a panting of monster lungs, the beast was upon me once more. He was at my very heels. I was lost." Madmen, That I was to linger so long before I fled. Up to then he had hunted by scent, and his movement was slow, but he had actually seen me as I started to run. From then onwards he had hunted by sight, for the path showed him where I had gone. Now, as he came round the curve, he was springing in great bounds. The moonlight shone upon his huge projecting eyes, the row of enormous teeth in his open mouth, and the gleaming fringe of claws upon his short, powerful forearms. With a scream of terror, I turned and rushed wildly down the path. Behind me, the thick, gasping breathing of the creature sounded louder and louder. His heavy footfall was beside me. Every instant I expected to feel his grip upon my back. And then, suddenly, there came a crash. I was falling through space, and everything beyond was darkness and rest. As I emerged from my unconsciousness, which could not, I think, have lasted more than a few minutes, I was aware of a most dreadful and penetrating smell. Putting out my hand in the darkness, I came upon something which felt like a huge lump of meat, while my other hand closed upon a large bone up above me there was a circle of starlit sky which showed me that i was lying at the bottom of a deep pit slowly i staggered to my feet and felt myself all over i was stiff and sore from head to foot but there was no limb which would not move no joint which would not bend as the circumstances of my falling came back into my confused brain i looked up in terror expecting to see that dreadful head silhouetted against the paling sky. There was no sign of the monster, however, nor could I hear any sound from above. I began to walk slowly round, therefore, feeling in every direction, to find out what this strange place could be into which I had been so opportunely precipitated. It was, as I have said, a pit, with sharply sloping walls, and a level bottom about twenty feet across. This bottom was littered with great gobbets of flesh, most of which was in the last state of putridity. The atmosphere was poisonous and horrible. After tripping and stumbling over these lumps of decay, I came suddenly against something hard, and I found that an upright post was firmly fixed in the centre of the hollow. It was so high that I could not reach the top of it with my hand, and it appeared to be covered with grease. Suddenly, I remembered that I had a tin box of wax vestas in my pocket. Striking one of them, I was able at last to form some opinion of this place into which I had fallen. There could be no question as to its nature. It was a trap, made by the hand of man. The post in the centre, some nine feet long, was sharpened at the upper end, and was black with the stale blood of the creatures who had been impaled upon it the remains scattered about were fragments of the victims, which had been cut away in order to clear the stake for the next who might blunder in. I remembered that Challenger had declared that man could not exist upon the plateau, since with his feeble weapons he could not hold his own against the monsters who roamed over it. But now it was clear enough how it could be done. In their narrow-mouthed caves, the natives, whoever they might be, had refuges into which the huge Saurians could not penetrate, while with their developed brains they were capable of setting such traps, covered with branches across the paths which marked the run of the animals, as would destroy them in spite of all their strength and activity. Man was always the master. The sloping wall of the pit was not difficult for an active man to climb. But I hesitated long before I trusted myself within reach of the dreadful creature which had so nearly destroyed me. How did I know that he was not lurking in the nearest clump of bushes, waiting for my reappearance? I took heart, however, as I recalled a conversation between Challenger and Summerlee upon the habits of the great saurians. Both were agreed that the monsters were practically brainless, that there was no room for reason in their tiny cranial cavities, and that if they had disappeared from the rest of the world, it was assuredly on account of their own stupidity, which made it impossible for them to adapt themselves to changing conditions. To lie in wait for me now would mean that the creature had appreciated what had happened to me, and this, in turn, would argue some power connecting cause and effect. Surely, it was more likely that a brainless creature, acting solely by vague predatory instinct, would give up the chase when I disappeared, and, after a pause of astonishment, would wander away in search of some other prey. I clambered to the edge of the pit, and looked over. The stars were fading, the sky was whitening, and the cold wind of morning blew presently upon my face. I could see or hear nothing of my enemy. Slowly I climbed out, and sat for a while upon the ground ready to spring back into my refuge, if any danger should appear. Then, reassured by the absolute stillness, and by the growing light, I took my courage in both hands, and stole back along the path which I had come. Some distance down it, I picked up my gun, and shortly afterwards struck the brook which was my guide. So, with many a frightened backward glance, I made for home and suddenly there came something to remind me of my absent companions. In the clear, still morning air there sounded far away the sharp hard note of a single rifle-shot. I paused and listened, but there was nothing more. For a moment I was shocked at the thought that some sudden danger might have befallen them. But then a simpler and more natural explanation came to my mind. It was now broad daylight. No doubt my absence had been noticed they had imagined that I was lost in the woods, and had fired this shot to guide me home. It is true that we had made a strict resolution against firing, but if it seemed to them that I might be in danger, they would not hesitate. It was for me now to hurry on as fast as possible, and so to reassure them. I was weary and spent, so my progress was not so fast as I wished. But at last I came into regions which I knew. There was the swamp of the pterodactyls upon my left. There in front of me was the glade of the iguanodons. Now I was in the last belt of trees which separated me from Fort Challenger. I raised my voice in a cheery shout to allay their fears. No answering greeting came back to me. My heart sank at that ominous stillness. I quickened my pace into a run. The Zareba rose before me even as I had left it, but the gates was open. I rushed in. In the cold morning light, it was a fearful sight which met my eyes. Our effects were scattered in wild confusion over the ground. My comrades had disappeared, and close to the smouldering ashes of our fire, the grass was stained crimson with a hideous pool of blood i was so stunned by this sudden shock that for a time i must have nearly lost my reason i have a vague recollection as one remembers a bad dream of rushing about through the woods all around the empty camp calling wildly for my companions no answer came back from the silent shadows the horrible thought that i might never see them again that i might find myself abandoned all alone in that dreadful place with no possible way of descending into the world below, that I might live and die in that nightmare country, drove me to desperation. I could have torn my hair and beaten my head in my despair. Only now did I realise how I had learned to lean upon my companions, upon the serene self-confidence of Challenger, and upon the masterful, humorous coolness of Lord John Roxton. Without them, I was like a child in the dark, helpless and powerless. I did not know which way to turn, or what I should do first. After a period, during which I sat in bewilderment, I set myself to try and discover what sudden misfortune could have befallen my companions. The whole disordered appearance of the camp showed that there had been some sort of attack, and the rifle-shot no doubt marked the time when it had occurred that there should have been only one shot, showed that it had been all over in an instant. The rifles still lay upon the ground, and one of them, Lord John's, had the empty cartridge in the breech. The blankets of Challenger and of Summerley beside the fire suggested that they had been asleep at the time. The cases of ammunition and of food were scattered about in a wild litter, together with our unfortunate cameras and plate-carriers, but none of them were missing. On the other hand, all the exposed provisions, and I remembered that there were a considerable quantity of them, were gone. They were animals then, and not natives, who had made the inroad, for surely the latter would have left nothing behind. But if animals, or some single terrible animal, then what had become of my comrades? A ferocious beast would surely have destroyed them, and left their remains it is true that there was that one hideous pool of blood which told of violence such a monster as had pursued me during the night could have carried away a victim as easily as a cat would a mouse in that case the others would have followed in pursuit but then they would assuredly have taken their rifles with them the more i tried to think it out with my confused and weary brain the less could i find any plausible explanation I searched round in the forest, but could see no tracks which could help me to a conclusion. Once I lost myself, and it was only by good luck, and after an hour of wandering, that I found the camp once more. Suddenly a thought came to me, and brought some little comfort to my heart. I was not absolutely alone in the world. Down at the bottom of the cliff, and within call of me, was waiting the faithful Zambo. I went to the edge of the plateau and looked over. Sure enough, he was squatting among his blankets beside his fire in his little camp. But, to my amazement, a second man was seated in front of him. For an instant my heart leaped for joy as I thought that one of my comrades had made his way safely down. But a second glance dispelled the hope. The rising sun shone red upon the man's skin. He was an Indian. I shouted loudly, and waved my handkerchief. Presently, Zambo looked up, waved his hand, and turned to ascend the pinnacle. In a short time he was standing close to me, and listening with deep distress to the story which I told him. "'Devil got them for sure, massa Malone,' said he. You got into the devil's country, sir, and he take you all to himself. You take advice, Massa Malone, and come down quick, else he get you as well. How can I come down, Zambo? You get creepers from trees, Massa Malone. Throw them over here. I make fast to this stump, and so you have bridge. We have thought of that. There are no creepers here which could bear us. Send for ropes, Massa Malone. Who can I send, and where? Send to Indian villages, sir. Plenty hide-rope in Indian village. Indian down below. Send him. Who is he? He one of our Indians. Other ones beat him, and take away his pay. He come back to us. Ready now to take letter. Bring rope—anything. Ready now to take letter. Bring rope—anything. To take a letter? Why not? Perhaps he might bring help, but in any case, he would ensure that our lives were not spent for nothing, and that news of all that we had won for science should reach our friends at home. I had two completed letters already waiting. I would spend the day in writing a third, which would bring my experiences absolutely up to date. The Indian could bear this back to the world. I ordered Zambo, therefore, to come again in the evening and I spent my miserable and lonely day in recording my own adventures of the night before. I also drew up a note, to be given to any white merchant or captain of a steamboat whom the Indian could find, imploring them to see that ropes were sent to us, since our lives must depend upon it. These documents I threw to Zambo in the evening, and also my purse, which contained three English sovereigns. They were to be given to the Indian and he was promised twice as much, if he returned with the ropes. "'So now you will understand, my dear Mr. McArdle, how this communication reaches you, and you will also know the truth, in case you never hear again from your unfortunate correspondent. Tonight I am too weary and too depressed to make any plans. Tomorrow I must think out some way by which I shall keep in touch with this camp, and yet search round for any traces of my unhappy friends. End
1: of chapter 12
0: Chapter 13 of The Lost World This LibriVox recording is in the public domain a sight which I shall never forget. Just as the sun was setting upon that melancholy night, I saw the lonely figure of the Indian upon the vast plain beneath me, and I watched him, our one faint hope of salvation, until he disappeared in the rising mists of evening, which lay rose-tinted from the setting sun, between the far-off river and me. It was quite dark when I at last turned back to our stricken camp and my last vision as I went was the red gleam of Zambo's fire, the one point of light in the wide world below, as was his faithful presence in my own shadowed soul. And yet, I felt happier than I had done since this crushing blow had fallen upon me, for it was good to think that the world should know what we had done, so that at the worst our names should not perish with our bodies but should go down to posterity associated with the result of our labours. It was an awesome thing to sleep in that ill-fated camp, and yet it was even more unnerving to do so in the jungle. One or the other it must be. Prudence, on the one hand, warned me that I should remain on guard. But exhausted nature, on the other, declared that I should do nothing of the kind. I climbed up on to a limb of the great ginkgo tree but there was no secure perch on its rounded surface, and I should certainly have fallen off and broken my neck the moment I began to doze. I got down, therefore, and pondered over what I should do. Finally, I closed the door of the Zareba, lit three separate fires in a triangle, and, having eaten a hearty supper, dropped off into a profound sleep, from which I had a strange and most welcome awakening. In the early morning, just as day was breaking, a hand was laid upon my arm, and starting up, with all my nerves in a tingle and my hand feeling for a rifle, I gave a cry of joy, as in the cold grey light I saw Lord John Roxton kneeling beside me. It was he, and yet it was not he. I had left him, calm in his bearing, correct in his person, prim in his dress. Now he was pale and wild-eyed, gasping as he breathed like one who has run far and fast. His gaunt face was scratched and bloody, his clothes were hanging in rags, and his hat was gone. I stared in amazement, but he gave me no chance for questions. He was grabbing at our stores all the time he spoke. "'Quick, young fellow, quick!' he cried. "'Every moment counts. Get the rifles, both of them. I have the other two. Now all the cartridges you can gather. Fill up your pockets. Now some food. Half a dozen tins will do. That's all right. Don't wait to talk or think. Get a move on, or we are done." Still, half awake and unable to imagine what it all might mean, I found myself hurrying madly after him through the wood, a rifle under each arm, and a pile of various stores in my hands. He dodged in and out through the thickest of the scrub, until he came to a dense clump of brushwood. Into this he rushed, regardless of thorns, and threw himself into the heart of it, pulling me down by his side. "'There!' he panted. "'I think we are safe here. They'll make for the camp as sure as fate. It will be their first idea. But this should puzzle them.' "'What is it all?' I asked, when I got my breath. "'Where are the professors, and who is it that is after us?' "'The ape-men,' he cried. "'My God, what brutes! Don't raise your voice, for they have long ears, sharp eyes, too, but no power of scent, so far as I could judge, so I don't think they can sniff us out.' "'Where have you been, young fellow? You were well out of it.' In a few sentences I whispered what I had done. "'Pretty bad,' said he when he heard of the dinosaur and the pit. It isn't quite the place for a rest-cure. What? But I had no idea what its possibilities were, until those devils got hold of us. The man-eaten Papuans had me once, but they are Chesterfields compared to this crowd. How did it happen? I asked. It was in the early morning. Our learned friends were just stirring, hadn't even begun to argue yet. Suddenly, it rained apes. They came down as thick as apples out of a tree. They had been assembling in the dark, I suppose, until that great tree over our heads was heavy with them. I shot one of them through the belly, but before we knew where we were, they had us spread-eagled on our backs. I call them apes, but they carried sticks and stones in their hands, and jabbered talk to each other, and ended up at tying our hands with creepers. So they are ahead of any beast that I have seen in my wanderings ape-men—that's what they are—missin' links, and I wish they had stayed missin'. They carried off their wounded comrade—he was bleeding like a pig—and then they sat around us, and if ever I saw frozen murder, it was in their eyes. They are big fellows, as big as a man, and a deal stronger. Curious, glassy grey eyes they have, under red tufts, and they just sat and gloated and gloated. Challenger is no chicken, but even he was cowed. He managed to struggle to his feet, and yelled out at them to have done with it and get it over. I think he had gone a bit out of his head at the suddenness of it, for he raged and cursed at them like a lunatic. If they had been a row of his favourite pressmen, he could not have slanged them worse. Well, what did they do? I was enthralled by the strange story which my companion was whispering into my ear while all the time his keen eyes were shooting in every direction and his hand grasping his cocked rifle. I thought it was the end of us, but instead of that it started them on a new line. They all jabbered and chatted together. Then one of them stood out beside Challenger. You'll smile, young fellow, but upon my word they might have been kinsmen. I couldn't have believed it if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes. This old ape-man-he was their chief-was a sort of red challenger with every one of our friend's beauty points, only just a trifle more so. He had the short body, the big shoulders, the round chest, no neck, a great ruddy frill of a beard, the tufted eyebrows, the what do you want, damn you, look about the eyes, and the whole catalogue. When the ape-man stood by Challenger and put his paw on his shoulder, the thing was complete. Summerlee was a bit hysterical, and he laughed till he cried. The ape-man laughed, too, or at least they put up the devil of a cackling, and they set to work to drag us off through the forest. They wouldn't touch the guns and things—thought them dangerous, I expect—but they carried away our loose food. Summerlee and I got some rough-handling on the way as my skin and my clothes to prove it for they took us a bee-line through the brambles and their own hides are like leather but challenger was all right four of them carried him shoulder high and he went like a roman emperor what's that it was a strange clicking noise in the distance not unlike castanets there they go said my companion slipping cartridges into the second double-barreled express load them all up young fellow me lad for we're not going to be taken alive and don't you think it that's the row they make when they are excited by george they'll have something to excite them if they put us up the last stand of the greys won't be in it with their rifles grasped in their stiffened hands mid a ring of the dead and dying as some fat head sings can you hear them now very far away that little lot will do no good but i expect their search-parties are all over the wood well i was telling you my tale of woe they got us soon to this town of theirs about a thousand huts of branches and leaves in a great grove of trees near the edge of the cliff it's three or four miles from here the filthy beasts fingered me all over and i feel as if i should never be clean again they tied us up the fellow who handled me tied like a bosun, and there we lay with our toes up beneath a tree, while a great brute stood guard over us with a club in his hand. When I say we, I mean Summerlee and myself, old Challenger was up a tree, eating pines and having the time of his life. I'm bound to say that he managed to get some fruit to us, and with his own hands he loosened our bonds. If you'd seen him sitting up in that tree hobnobbing with his twin brother, and singing in that rolling bass of his Ring Out Wild Bells, cause music of any kind seemed to put him in good humour, you'd have smiled. But we weren't in much mood for laughing, as you can guess. They were inclined, within limits, to let him do what he liked, but they drew the line pretty sharply at us. It was a mighty consolation to us all to know that you were running loose and had the archives in your keeping. Well, now, young fellow, I'll tell you what will surprise you. You say you saw signs of men and fires, traps, and the like. Well, we have seen the natives themselves. Poor devils they were, down-faced little chaps, and had enough to make them so. It seems that the humans hold one side of this plateau, over yonder where you saw the caves, and the ape-men hold this side, and there is bloody war between them all the time. That's the situation so far as I could follow it. Well, yesterday, the ape-men got hold of a dozen of the humans and brought them in as prisoners. You never heard such a jabbering and shrieking in your life. The men were little red fellows, and had been bitten and clawed so they could hardly walk. The ape-men put two of them to death, there and there, fairly pulled the arm off of one of them. It was perfectly beastly. Plucky little chaps they are, and hardly gave a squeak. But it turned us absolutely sick. Summerlee fainted, and even Challenger had as much as he could stand. I think they have cleared, don't you?" We listened intently, but nothing save the calling of the birds broke the deep peace of the forest. Lord Roxton went on with his story. "'I think you have had the escape of your life, young fellow, my lad. It was catching those Indians that put you clean out of their heads, else they would have been back to the camp for you as sure as fate, and gathered you in. Of course, as you said, they have been watching us from the beginning out of that tree, and they knew perfectly well that we were one short. However, they could think only of the new hall. So it was I, and not a bunch of apes that dropped in on you in the morning. Well, we had a horrid business afterwards. My God, what a nightmare the whole thing is! You remember the great bristle of sharp canes down below where we found the skeleton of the American? Well, that is just under Ape Town, and it's the jumping-off place of their prisoners. I expect there's heaps of skeletons there, if we looked for them. They have a sort of clear parade ground on the top, and they make a proper ceremony about it. One by one the poor devils have to jump, and the game is to see whether they are merely dashed to pieces, or whether they get skewered on the canes. They took us out to see it, and the whole tribe lined up on the edge. Four of the Indians jumped, and the canes went through em like knitting needles through a pat of butter." No wonder we found that poor Yankee skeleton with the canes growing between his ribs. It was horrible, but it was deucedly interesting, too. We were all fascinated to see them take the dive, even when we thought it would be our turn next on the springboard. Well, it wasn't. They kept six of the Indians up for today. That's how I understood it. But I fancy we were to be the star performers in the show.' Challenger might get off, but Summerlee and I were in the bill. Their language is more than half signs, and it was not hard to follow them, so I thought it was time we made a break for it. I had been plotting it out a bit, and had one or two things clear in my mind. It was all on me, for Summerlee was useless, and Challenger not much better. The only time they got together. They got slagging because they couldn't agree upon the scientific classification of these red-headed devils that had got hold of us. One said it was the Dryopithecus of Java, the other said it was the Pithecanthropus. Madness, I call it, loonies both. I had thought out one or two points that were helpful. One was that these brutes could not run as fast as a man in the open. They have short, bandy legs, you see, and heavy bodies even Challenger could give a few yards in a hundred to the best of them, and you or I would be a perfect shrub. Another point was that they knew nothing about guns. I don't believe they ever understood how the fellow I shot came by his hurt. If we could get at our guns, there was no saying what we could do. So I broke away early this morning, gave my guard a kick in the tummy that laid him out, and sprinted for the camp. "'There I got you and the guns, and here we are.' "'But the professors!' I cried in consternation. "'Well, we must go back and fetch them. I couldn't bring them with me. Challenger was up the tree, and Summerlee was not fit for the effort. The only chance was to get the guns and try a rescue. Of course, they may scupper them at once in revenge. I don't think they would touch Challenger.' But I wouldn't answer for Summerley. But they would have had him in any case, of that I am certain. So I haven't made matters any worse by bolting. But we are honour bound to go back and have them out, or see it through with them. So you can make up your soul, young fellow, my lad, for it will be one way or the other before evening. I have tried to imitate here Lord Roxton's jerky talk his short, strong sentences—the half-humorous, half-reckless tone that ran through it all. But he was a born leader. As danger thickened, his jaunty manner would increase, his speech became more racy, his cold eyes glitter into ardent life, and his Don Quixote mustache bristle with joyous excitement. His love of danger, his intense appreciation of the drama of an adventure, all the more intense for being held tightly in, his consistent view that every peril in life is a form of sport, a fierce game betwixt you and fate, with death as a forfeit, made him a wonderful companion at such hours. If it were not for our fears as to the fate of our companions, it would have been a positive joy to throw myself with such a man into such an affair. We were rising from our brushwood hiding-place, when suddenly I felt his grip upon my arm. "'By George!' he whispered here they come. From where we lay we could look down a broad aisle, arched with green, formed by the trunks and branches. Along this a party of the ape-men were passing. They went in single file, with bent legs and rounded backs, their hands occasionally touching the ground, their heads turning to left and right as they trotted along. Their crouching gait took away from their height, but I should put them at five feet or so, with long arms and enormous chests. Many of them carried sticks, and at the distance they looked like a line of very hairy and deformed human beings. For a moment I caught this clear glimpse of them. Then they were lost among the bushes. "'Not this time,' said Lord John, who had caught up his rifle. "'Our best chance is to lie quiet until they have given up the search.' Then we shall see whether we can't get back to their town and hit them where it hurts most. Give them an hour, and we'll march." We filled in the time by opening one of our food tins, and making sure of our breakfast. Lord Roxton had had nothing but some fruit since the morning before, and ate like a starving man. Then, at last, our pockets bulging with cartridges, and a rifle in each hand, we started off upon our mission of rescue. Before leaving it, we carefully marked our little hiding place among the brushwood and its bearing to Fort Challenger, that we might find it again if we needed it. We slunk through the bushes in silence until we came to the very edge of the cliff, close to the old camp. There we halted, and Lord john gave me some idea of his plans. "So long as we are among the thick trees, these swine are our masters," said he. "They can see us, and we cannot see them. But in the open it is different. There we can move faster than they, so we must stick to the open all we can. The edge of the plateau has fewer large trees than further inland, so that's our line of advance. Go slowly, keep your eyes open, and your rifle ready. Above all, never let them get you prisoner while there is a cartridge left. That's my last word to you, young fellow. When we reached the edge of the cliff, I looked over, and saw our good old black zambo sitting smoking on a rock below us. I would have given a great deal to have hailed him and told him how we were placed, but he was too dangerous, lest we should be heard. The woods seemed to be full of the ape men. Again and again we heard their curious clicking chatter. At such times we plunged into the nearest clump of bushes, and lay still until the sound had passed away. Our advance, therefore, was very slow, and two hours at least must have passed, before I saw, by Lord John's cautious movements, that we must be close to our destination. He motioned to me to lie still, and he crawled forward himself. In a minute he was back again, his face quivering with eagerness. "'Come!' said he. "'Come quick! I hope to the Lord that we are not too late already!' I found myself shaking with nervous excitement, as I scrambled forward and lay down beside him, looking out through the bushes at a clearing which stretched before us. It was a sight which I shall never forget until my dying day, so weird, so impossible, that I do not know how I am to make you realize it, or how in a few years I shall bring myself to believe in it, if I live to sit once more on a lounge in the savage club and look out at the drab solidity of the embankment. I know that it will seem then to be some wild nightmare, some delirium of fever. Yet I will set it down now, while it is still fresh in my memory, and one, at least, the man who lay in the damp grasses by my side, will know if I have lied." A wide open space lay before us, some hundreds of yards across, all green turf and low bracken growing to the very edge of the cliff. Round this clearing there was a semicircle of trees, with curious huts built of foliage piled one above the other among the branches. A rookery, with every nest a little house, would best convey the idea. The openings of these huts and the branches of the trees were thronged with a dense mob of ape people, whom, from their size, I took to be the females and infants of the tribe. They formed the background of the picture, and were all looking out with eager interest at the same scene which fascinated and bewildered us. In the open, and near the edge of the cliff, there had assembled a crowd of some hundred of these shaggy red-haired creatures, many of them of immense size, and all of them horrible to look upon. There was a certain discipline among them, for none of them attempted to break the line which had been formed. In front there stood a small group of Indians, little, clean-limbed red fellows, whose skins glowed like polished bronze in the strong sunlight. A tall, thin, white man was standing beside them, his head bowed, his arms folded, his whole attitude expressive of his horror and dejection. There was no mistaking the angular form of Professor Summerlee. In front of and around this dejected group of prisoners were several ape-men, who watched them closely and made all escape impossible. Then, right out from all the others and close to the edge of the cliff, were two figures, so strange and under other circumstances so ludicrous, that they absorbed my attention. The one was our comrade, Professor Challenger. The remains of his coat still hung in strips from his shoulders, but his shirt had been all torn out, and his great beard merged itself in the black tangle which covered his mighty chest. He had lost his hat, and his hair, which had grown long in our wanderings, was flying in wild disorder. A single day seemed to have changed him from the highest product of modern civilization to the most desperate savage in South America. Beside him stood his master, the King of the Ape Men. In all things he was, as Lord John had said, the very image of our professor, save that his colouring was red instead of black. The same short broad figure, the same heavy shoulders, the same forward-hanging of the arms, the same bristling beard merging itself in the hairy chest. Only above the eyebrows, where the sloping forehead and low curved skull of the ape-man were in sharp contrast to the broad brow and magnificent cranium of the European, could one see any marked difference. At every other point, the King was an absurd parody of the Professor. All this, which takes me so long to describe, impressed itself upon me in a few seconds. Then we had very different things to think of, for an active drama was in progress. Two of the ape-men had seized one of the Indians out of the group, and dragged him forward to the edge of the cliff. The King raised his hand as a signal. They caught the man by his leg and arm, and swung him three times backwards and forwards, with tremendous violence. Then, with a frightful heave, they shot the poor wretch over the precipice. With such force did they throw him, that he curved high in the air before beginning to drop. As he vanished from sight, the whole assembly, except the guards, rushed forward to the edge of the precipice, and there was a long pause of absolute silence. Broken by a mad yell of delight. They sprang about, tossing their long hairy arms in the air, and howling with exultation. Then they fell back from the edge, formed themselves again into a line, and waited for the next victim. This time it was Summerlee. Two of his guards caught him by the wrists and pulled him brutally to the front. His thin figure and long limbs struggled and fluttered like a chicken being dragged from a coop. Challenger had turned to the King, and waved his hands frantically before him. He was begging, pleading, imploring for his comrade's life. The ape-man pushed him roughly aside, and shook his head. It was the last conscious movement he was to make upon earth. Lord John's rifle cracked, and the King sank down, a tangled red sprawling thing, upon the ground. "'Shoot into the thick of them! Shoot, Sonny, shoot!' cried my companion. There are strange red depths in the soul of the most commonplace man. I am tender-hearted by nature, and have found my eyes moist many a time over the scream of a wounded hare. Yet the blood-lust was on me now. I found myself on my feet, emptying one magazine, then the other, clicking open the breech to reload, snapping it to again, while cheering and yelling with pure ferocity and joy of slaughter as i did so with our four guns the two of us made a horrible havoc both the guards who held summerlee were down and he was staggering about like a drunken man in his amazement unable to realize that he was a free man the dense mob of ape-men ran about in bewilderment marvelling whence this storm of death was coming or what it might mean They waved, gesticulated, screamed, and tripped over those who had fallen. Then, with a sudden impulse, they all rushed in a howling crowd to the trees for shelter, leaving the ground behind them spotted with their stricken comrades. The prisoners were left for the moment standing alone in the middle of the clearing. Challenger's quick brain had grasped the situation. He seized the bewildered Somerly by the arm, and they both ran towards us two of the guards bounded after them, and fell to two bullets from Lord John. We ran forward into the open to meet our friends, and pressed a loaded rifle into the hands of each. But Summerlee was at the end of his strength. He could hardly totter. Already the ape-men were recovering from their panic. They were coming through the brushwood, and threatening to cut us off. Challenger and I ran Summerlee along, one at each of his elbows, While Lord John covered our retreat, firing again and again as savage heads snarled at us out of the bushes. For a mile or more the chattering brutes were at our very heels. Then the pursuit slackened, for they learned our power and would no longer face that unerring rifle. When we had at last reached the camp, we looked back and found ourselves alone. So it seemed to us, and yet we were mistaken. We had hardly closed the thornbush door of our zareba, clasped each other's hands, and thrown ourselves panting upon the ground beside our spring, when we heard a patter of feet, and then a gentle, plaintive crying from outside our entrance. Lord Roxton rushed forward, rifle in hand, and threw it open. There, prostrate upon their faces, lay the little red figures of the four surviving Indians, trembling with fear of us. And yet imploring our protection. With an expressive sweep of his hands, one of them pointed to the woods around them, and indicated that they were full of danger. Then, darting forward, he threw his arms round Lord John's legs and rested his face upon them. By George! cried our peer, pulling at his moustache in great perplexity. I say, what the deuce are we to do with these people? Get up, little chappie! and take your face off my boots." Summerlee was sitting up, and stuffing some tobacco into his old briar. "'We've got to see them safe,' said he. "'You've pulled us all out of the jaws of death. My word, it was a good bit of work!' "'Admirable!' cried Challenger. "'Admirable! Not only we as individuals, but European science collectively owe you a deep debt of gratitude for what you have done.' I do not hesitate to say that the disappearance of Professor Summerlee and myself would have left an appreciable gap in modern zoological history. Our young friend here and you have done most excellently well. He beamed at us with the old paternal smile, but European science would have been somewhat amazed could they have seen their chosen child, the hope of the future, with his tangled, unkempt head, his bare chest, and his tattered clothes. He had one of the meat tins between his knees, and sat with a large piece of cold Australian mutton between his fingers. The Indian looked up at him, and then, with a little yelp, cringed to the ground and clung to Lord John's leg. "'Don't you be scared, my bunny boy,' said Lord John, patting the matted head in front of him. "'He can't stick your appearance, challenger, and by George I don't wonder.' "'All right, little chap, he's only a human, just the same as the rest of us.' "'Really, sir?' cried the professor. "'Well, it's lucky for you, challenger, that you are a little bit out of the ordinary. If you hadn't been so like the king—upon my word, Lord John, you allow yourself great latitude. Well, it's a fact.' "'I beg, sir, that you will change the subject.' your remarks are irrelevant and unintelligible. The question before us is what we are to do with these Indians. The obvious thing is to escort them home, if we knew where their home was. There is no difficulty about that," said I. They live in the caves on the other side of the central lake. Our young friend here knows where they live. I gather it is some distance. A good twenty miles," said I. Summerlee gave a groan. "'I, for one, could never get there. Surely, I hear those brutes still howling upon our track.' As we spoke, from the dark recesses of the woods, we heard far away the jabbering cry of the ape-men. The Indians once more set up a feeble wail of fear. "'We must move, and move quick,' said Lord John. "'You help Summerlee, young fellow. These Indians will carry stores.' Now, then, come along, before they can see us." In less than half an hour we had reached our brushwood retreat, and concealed ourselves. All day we heard the excited calling of the ape-men in the direction of our old camp, but none of them came our way, and the tired fugitives, red and white, had a long, deep sleep. I was dozing myself in the evening, when something plucked my sleeve, and I found Challenger kneeling beside me. "'You keep a diary of these events, and you expect eventually to publish it, Mr. Malone,' said he, with solemnity. "'I am only here as a press reporter,' I answered. "'Exactly. You may have heard some rather fatuous remarks of Lord John Broxton's, which seemed to apply that there was some—some uh, some resemblance.' "'Yes, I heard them.' I need not say that any publicity given to such an idea, any levity in your narrative of what occurred, would be exceedingly offensive to me. I will keep well within the truth. Lord John's observations are frequently exceedingly fanciful, and he is capable of attributing the most absurd reasons to the respect which is always shown by the most undeveloped races to dignity and character you follow my meaning? Entirely. I leave the matter to your discretion. Then, after a great pause, he added, The King of the Ape-Man was really a creature of great distinction, a most remarkably handsome and intelligent personality. Did it not strike you? A most remarkable creature, said I. And the Professor, much eased in his mind, Settled down to his slumber once more.
1: End of chapter thirteen.
0: Chapter fourteen of The Lost World. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Those were the real conquests. We had imagined that our pursuers, the ape-men, knew nothing of our brushwood hiding-place, but we were soon to find out our mistake. There was no sound in the woods, not a leaf moved upon the trees, and all was peace around us. But we should have been warned by our first experience how cunningly and how patiently these creatures can watch and wait until their chance comes. Whatever fate may be mine through life, I am very sure that I shall never be nearer death than I was that morning. But I will tell you the thing in its due order." We all awoke exhausted after the terrific emotions and scanty food of yesterday. Summerlee was still so weak that it was an effort for him to stand. But the old man was full of a sort of surly courage which would never admit defeat. A council was held, and it was agreed that we should wait quietly for an hour or two where we were, have our much-needed breakfast, and then make our way across the plateau and round the central lake to the caves where our observations had shown that the Indians lived. We relied upon the fact that we could count upon the good word of those whom we had rescued, to ensure a warm welcome from their fellows. Then with our mission accomplished, and possessing a fuller knowledge of the secrets of Maple White Land we should turn our whole thoughts to the vital problem of our escape and return even challenger was ready to admit that we should then have done all for which we had come and that our first duty from that time onwards was to carry back to civilization the amazing discoveries we had made we were able now to take a more leisurely view of the indians whom we had rescued they were small men wiry active and well built With lank, blank hair tied up in a bunch behind their heads with a leathern thong, and leathern also were their loin-cloths. Their faces were hairless, well-formed, and good-humoured. The lobes of their ears, hanging ragged and bloody, showed that they had been pierced for some ornaments, which their captors had torn out. Their speech, though unintelligible to us, was fluent among themselves, and as they pointed to each other and uttered the word Akala many times over, we gathered that this was the name of the nation. Occasionally, with faces which were convulsed with fear and hatred, they shook their clenched hands at the woods round, and cried, Doda, Doda, which was surely their term for their enemies. What do you make of them, challenger? said Lord John. One thing is very clear to me, and that it is that the little chap with the front of his head shaved is a chief among them it was indeed evident that this man stood apart from the others and that they never ventured to address him without every sign of deep respect he seemed to be the youngest of them all and yet so proud and high was his spirit that upon challenger laying his great hand upon his head he started like a spurred horse and with a quick flash of his dark eyes moved further away from the professor Then, placing his hand upon his breast, and holding himself with great dignity, he uttered the word Maretas several times. The professor, unabashed, seized the nearest Indian by the shoulder, and proceeded to lecture upon him, as if he were a potted specimen in a classroom. "'The type of these people,' said he, in his sonorous fashion, whether judged by cranial capacity, facial angle, or any other test, cannot be regarded—' as a low one. On the contrary, we must place it as considerably higher in the scale than many South American tribes which I could mention. On no possible supposition can we explain the evolution of such a race in this place. For that matter, so great a gap separates these ape-men from the primitive animals that have survived upon this plateau, that it is inadmissible to think that they could have developed where we find them. "'Then where the deuce did they drop from?' asked Lord John. "'A question which will no doubt be eagerly discussed in every scientific society in Europe and America,' the professor answered. "'My own reading of the situation, for what it is worth—he inflated his chest enormously, and looked insolently around him at the words—is that evolution has advanced under the peculiar conditions of this country.' up to the vertebrate stage, the old types surviving and living on in company with the newer ones. Thus, we find such modern creatures as the taper, an animal with quite a respectable length of pedigree, the great deer, and the anteater, in the companionship of reptilian forms of Jurassic type. So much is clear. And now come the ape-men and the Indian. What is the scientific mind to think of their presence? I can only account for it by an invasion from outside. It is probable that there existed an anthropoid ape in South America, who in past ages found his way to this place, and that he developed into the creatures we have seen, some of which—here he looked hard at me—were of an appearance and shape which, if it had been accompanied by corresponding intelligence, would, I do not hesitate to say have reflected credit upon any living race. As to the Indians, I cannot doubt that they are more recent emigrants from below. Under the stress of famine, or of conquest, they have made their way up here. Faced by ferocious creatures which they had never before seen, they took refuge in the caves which our young friend has described. But they have no doubt had a bitter fight to hold their own against wild beasts and especially against the ape-men, who would regard them as intruders, and wage a merciless war upon them with a cunning which the larger beasts would lack. Hence the fact that their numbers appear to be limited. Well, gentlemen, have I read you the riddle aright, or is there any point which you would query? Professor Summerlee, for once was too depressed to argue— though he shook his head violently as a token of general disagreement. Lord John merely scratched his scanty locks, with the remark that he couldn't put up a fight as he wasn't in the same weight or class. For my own part, I performed my usual role of bringing things down to a strictly prosaic and practical level, by the remark that one of the Indians was missing. "'He has gone to fetch some water,' said Lord Roxton. We fitted him up with an empty beef tin, and he is off. "'To the old camp?' I asked. "'Now, to the brook. It's among the trees, there. It can't be more than a couple of hundred yards. But the beggar is certainly taking his time.' "'I'll go and look after him,' said I. I picked up my rifle and strolled in the direction of the brook, leaving my friends to lay out the scanty breakfast. It may seem to you, Rash, that even for so short a distance I should quit the shelter of our friendly thicket, but you will remember that we were many miles from Ape Town, that so far as we knew the creatures had not discovered our retreat, and that in any case, with a rifle in my hands, I had no fear of them. I had not yet learned their cunning or their strength. I could hear the murmur of our brook somewhere ahead of me but there was a tangle of trees and brushwood between me and it. I was making my way through this, at a point which was just out of sight of my companions, when, under one of the trees, I noticed something red huddled among the bushes. As I approached it, I was shocked to see that it was the dead body of the missing Indian. He lay upon his side, his limbs drawn up, and his head screwed round at a most unnatural angle, so that he seemed to be looking straight over his own shoulder. I gave a cry to warn my friends that something was amiss, and running forwards I stooped over the body. Surely my guardian angel was very near me then, for some instinct of fear, or it may have been some faint rustle of leaves, made me glance upwards. Out of the thick green foliage which hung low over my head, two long muscular arms covered with reddish hair were slowly descending another instant, and the great, stealthy hands would have been round my throat. I sprang backwards, but quick as I was, those hands were quicker still. Through my sudden spring they missed a fatal grip, but one of them caught the back of my neck, and the other one my face. I threw my hands up to protect my throat, and the next moment the huge paw had slid down my face and closed over them. I was lifted lightly from the ground and I felt an intolerable pressure forcing my head back and back, until the strain upon the cervical spine was more than I could bear. My senses swam, but I still tore at the hand, and forced it out from my chin. Looking up, I saw a frightful face, with cold, inexorable light blue eyes, looking down into mine. There was something hypnotic in those terrible eyes. I could struggle no longer. As the creature felt me grow limp in his grasp, two white canines gleamed for a moment at each side of the vile mouth, and the grip tightened still more upon my chin, forcing it always upwards and back. A thin, oval-tinted mist formed before my eyes, and little silvery bells tinkled in my ears. Dully and far off, I heard the crack of a rifle, and was feebly aware of the shock as I was dropped to the earth. Where I lay without sense or motion. I awoke to find myself on my back upon the grass in our lair within the thicket. Someone had brought the water from the brook, and Lord John was sprinkling my head with it, while Challenger and Summerlee were propping me up with concern in their faces. For a moment I had a glimpse of the human spirits behind their scientific masks. It was really shock rather than an injury which had prostrated me. And in half an hour, in spite of aching head and stiff neck, I was sitting up and ready for anything. But you've had the escape of your life, young fellow, my lad," said Lord Roxton. When I heard your cry and ran forward and saw your head twisted half off and your stirrups kicking in the air, I thought we were one short. Missed the beast in my flurry, but he dropped you all right and was off like a streak. By George, I wish I had fifty men with rifles! I'd clear out the whole infernal gang of them, and leave this country a bit cleaner than we found it." It was clear now that the ape-men had in some way marked us down, and that we were watched on every side. We had not so much to fear from them during the day, but they would be very likely to rush us by night, so the sooner we got away from their neighbourhood, the better on three sides of us was absolute forest, and there we might find ourselves in an ambush, but on the fourth side, that which sloped down in the direction of the lake, there was only low scrub, with scattered trees and occasional open glades. It was, in fact, the route which I had myself taken in my solitary journey, and it led us straight for the Indian caves. This then, this then, must for every reason be our road." One great regret we had, and that was to leave our old camp behind us, not only for the sake of the stores which remained there, but even more because we were losing touch with Zambo, our link with the outside world. However, we had a fair supply of cartridges and all our guns, so, for a time at least, we could look after ourselves, and we hoped soon to have a chance of returning and restoring our communications with our negro. He had faithfully promised to stay where he was, and we had not a doubt that he would be as good as his word. It was in the early afternoon that we started upon our journey. The young chief walked at our head as our guide, but refused indignantly to carry any burden. Behind him came the two surviving Indians with our scanty possessions upon their backs. We four white men walked in the rear with rifles loaded and ready. As we started, there broke from the thick silent woods behind us a sudden great ululation of the ape-men, which may have been a cheer of triumph at our departure, or a jeer of contempt at our flight. Looking back, we saw only the dense screen of trees, but that long-drawn yell told us how many of our enemies lurked among them. We saw no sign of pursuit, however, and soon we had got into more open country, and beyond their power. As I tramped along, the rearmost of the four, I could not help smiling at the appearance of my three companions in front. Was this the luxurious Lord John Roxton, who had sat that evening in the Albany amidst his Persian rugs and his pictures in the pink radiance of the tinted lights? And was this the imposing professor, who had swelled behind the great desk in his massive study at Enmore Park? And finally, could this be the astute and prim figure which had risen before the meeting at the Zoological Institute. No three tramps that one could have met in a Surrey Lane could have looked more hopeless and bedraggled. We had, it is true, been only a week or so upon the top of the plateau, but all our spare clothing was in our camp below, and the one week had been a severe one upon us all, though least to me, who had not to endure the handling of the ape-men. My three friends had all lost their hats, and had now bound handkerchiefs round their heads, their clothes hung in ribbons about them, and their unshaven, grimy faces were hardly to be recognized. Both Summerlee and Challenger were limping heavily, while I still dragged my feet from weakness after the shock of the morning, and my neck was as stiff as a board from the murderous grip that held it. We were, indeed, a sorry crew and I did not wonder to see our Indian companions glance back at us occasionally, with horror and amazement on their faces. In the late afternoon we reached the margin of the lake, and as we emerged from the bush and saw the sheet of water stretching before us, our native friends set up a shrill cry of joy and pointed eagerly in front of them. It was, indeed, a wonderful sight which lay before us. Sweeping over the glassy surface was a great flotilla of canoes coming straight for the shore upon which we stood. They were some miles out when we first saw them, but they shot forward with great swiftness, and were soon so near that the rowers could distinguish our persons. Instantly a thunderous shout of delight burst upon them, and we saw them rise from their seats, waving their paddles and spears madly in the air. Then bending to their work once more, They flew across the intervening water, beached their boats upon the sloping sand, and rushed up to us, prostrating themselves with loud cries of greeting before the young chief. Finally, one of them, an elderly man with a necklace and bracelet of great lustrous glass beads, and the skin of some beautiful mottled amber-coloured animal slung over his shoulders, ran forward and embraced most tenderly the youth whom we had saved. He then looked at us, and asked some questions, after which he stepped up with much dignity, and embraced us also, each in turn. Then, at his order, the whole tribe lay down upon the ground before us in homage. Personally, I felt shy and uncomfortable at this obsequious adoration, and I read the same feeling in the faces of Roxton and Summerlee, but Challenger expanded like a flower in the sun. "'They may be undeveloped types,' said he, stroking his beard and looking round at them, but their department, in the presence of their superiors, might be a lesson to some of our more advanced Europeans. Strange how correct are the instincts of the natural man!" It was clear that the natives had come about upon the warpath, for every man carried his spear, a long bamboo tipped with bone, his bow and arrows, and some sort of club or stone battle-axe slung at his side. Their dark, angry glances at the woods from which we had come, and the frequent repetition of the word Doda, made it clear enough that this was a rescue party, who had set forth to save or revenge the old chief's son, for such we gathered that the youth must be. A council was now held by the whole tribe squatting in a circle, whilst we sat near on a slab of basalt, and watched their proceedings. Two or three warriors spoke and finally our young friend made a spirited harangue with such eloquent features and gestures that we could understand it all as clearly as if we had known his language what is the use of returning he said sooner or later the thing must be done your comrades have been murdered what if i return safe these others have been done to death there is no safety for any of us we are assembled now and ready then he pointed to us. These strange men are our friends. They are great fighters, and they hate the ape-men even as we do. They command—here he pointed up to heaven—the thunder and the lightning. When shall we have such a chance again? Let us go forward, and either die now, or live for the future in safety. How else shall we go back unashamed to our women? The little red warriors hung upon the words of the speaker. And when he had finished, they burst into a roar of applause, waving their rude weapons in the air. The old chief stepped forward to us and asked us some questions, pointing at the same time to the woods. Lord John made a sign to him that he should wait for an answer, and then he turned to us. Well, it's up to you to say what we will do, said he. For my part, I have a score to settle with these monkey folk, and if it ends by wiping them off the face of the earth, I don't see that the earth need fret about it. I'm going with our little red pals, and I mean to see them through the scrap. What do you say, young fellow? Of course I will come. And you, Challenger? I will assuredly cooperate. And you, Summerlee? We seem to be drifting very far from the object of this expedition, Lord John. I assure you— that I literally thought, when I left my professional chair in London, that it was for the purpose of heading a raid of savages upon a colony of anthropoid apes." "'To such base uses do we come,' said Lord John, smiling. "'But we are up against it. So what's the decision?' "'It seems a most questionable step,' said Summerley, argumentative to the last. "'But if you are all going—' i hardly see how i can remain behind then it is settled said lord john and turning to the chief he nodded and slapped his rifle the old fellow clasped our hands each in turn while his men cheered louder than ever it was too late to advance that night so the indians settled down into a rude bivouac on all sides their fires began to glimmer and smoke Some of them, who had disappeared into the jungle, came back presently driving a young iguanodon before them. Like the others, it had a daub of asphalt upon its shoulder, and it was only when we saw one of the natives step forward with the air of an owner, and give his consent to the beast's slaughter, that we understood at last that these great creatures were as much private property as a herd of cattle, and that these symbols, which had so perplexed us, were nothing more than the marks of the owner helpless, torpid, and vegetarian, with great limbs but a minute brain, they could be rounded up and driven by a child. In a few minutes the huge beast had been cut up, and slabs of him were hanging over a dozen campfires, together with great scaly ganoid fish which had been speared in the lake. Summerlee had laid down and slept upon the sand, but we others roamed round the edge of the water, seeking to learn something more of this strange country. Twice we found pits of blue clay, such as we had already seen in the swamp of the pterodactyls. These were old volcanic vents, and for some reason excited the greatest interest in Lord John. What attracted Challenger, on the other hand, was a bubbling, girling, mud geyser, where some strange gas formed great bursting bubbles upon the surface. He thrust a hollow reed into it, and cried out with delight, like a schoolboy, that he was able, on touching it with a lighted match, to cause a sharp explosion and a blue flame at the far end of the tube. Still more pleased was he, when, inverting the leathern pouch over the end of the reed, and so filling it with the gas, he was able to send it soaring up into the air. An inflammable gas, and one markedly lighter than the atmosphere. I should say, beyond doubt, that it contained a considerable proportion of free hydrogen. The resources of g e c are not yet exhausted, my young friend. I may yet show you how a great mind moulds all nature to its use. He swelled with some secret purpose, but would say no more. There was nothing which we could see upon the shore which seemed to me so wonderful as the great sheet of water before us. Our numbers and our noise had frightened all living creatures away, and save for a few pterodactyls. Which soared round high above our heads while they waited for the carrion, all was still around the camp. But it was different out upon the rose tinted waters of the central lake. It boiled and heaved with strange life. Great slate coloured backs and high serrated dorsal fins shot up with a fringe of silver, and then rolled down into the depths again. The sand banks far out were spotted with uncouth crawling forms, huge turtles strange saurians, and one great flat creature, like a writhing, palpitating mat of black greasy leather, which flopped its way slowly to the lake. Here and there, high serpent-heads projected out of the water, cutting swiftly through it with a little collar of foam in front, and a long swirling wake behind, rising and falling in graceful, swan-like undulations as they went. It was not until one of these creatures wriggled on to a sandbank within a few hundred yards of us, and exposed a barrel-shaped body and huge flippers behind the long serpent neck, that Challenger and Summerlee, who had joined us, broke out into their duet of wonder and admiration. "'Plasiosaurus! A fresh-water Plasiosaurus!' cried Summerlee,—that I should have lived to see such a sight. We are blessed, my dear challenger, above all zoologists, since the world began. It was not until the night had fallen, and the fires of our savage allies glowed red in the shadows, that our two men of science could be dragged away from the fascinations of that primeval lake. Even in the darkness, as we lay upon the Strand, we heard from time to time the short and plunge of the huge creatures who lived therein. At earliest dawn our camp was astir, and an hour later we had started upon our memorable expedition. Often in my dreams have I thought that I might live to be a war correspondent. In what wildest one could I have conceived the nature of the campaign which it should be my lot to report? Here, then, is my first dispatch from a field of battle." Our numbers had been reinforced during the night by a fresh batch of natives from the caves, and we may have been four or five hundred strong when we made our advance. A fringe of scouts was thrown out in front, and behind them the whole force in a solid column made their way up the long slope of the bush country until we were near the edge of the forest. Here they spread out into a long straggling line of spearmen and bowmen. Roxton and Summerley took their position upon the right flank. While Challenger and I were on the left, it was a host of the Stone Age that we were accompanying to battle. We with the last word of the gunsmith's art from St. James Street and the Strand, we had not long to wait for our enemy. A wild shrill clamor rose from the edge of the wood, and suddenly a body of ape-men rushed out with clubs and stones and made for the centre of the Indian line. It was a valiant move. But a foolish one, for the great bandy-legged creatures were slow afoot, while their opponents were as active as cats. It was horrible to see the fierce brutes with foaming mouths and glaring eyes, rushing and grasping, but forever missing their elusive enemies, while arrow after arrow buried itself in their hides. One great fellow ran past me, roaring with pain, with a dozen darts sticking from his chest and ribs. In mercy, I put a bullet through his skull, and he fell sprawling among the aloes. But this was the only shot fired, for the attack had been at the centre of the line, and the Indians there had needed no help of ours in repulsing it. Of all the ape-men who had rushed out into the open, I do not think that one got back to cover. But the matter was more deadly when we came among the trees, for an hour or more after we entered the wood, there was a desperate struggle, in which for a time we hardly held our own. Springing out from among the scrub, the ape-men, with huge clubs, broke in upon the Indians, and often felled three or four of them before they could be speared. Their frightful blows shattered everything upon which they fell. One of them knocked Summerlee's rifle to Matchwood, and the next would have crushed his skull, had the Indian not stabbed the beast to the heart other ape-men in the trees above us hurled down stones and logs of wood occasionally dropping bodily onto our ranks and fighting furiously until they were felled once our allies broke under the pressure and had it not been for the execution done by our rifles they would certainly have been taken to their heels but they were gallantly rallied by their old chief and came on with such a rush that the ape-men began to turn to give way Summerlee was weaponless but I was employing my magazine as quick as I could fire, and on the further flank we heard the continuous cracking of our companions' rifles. Then, in a moment, came the panic and the collapse. Screaming and howling, the great creatures rushed away in all directions, through the brushwood, while our allies yelled in their savage delight, following swiftly after their flying enemies. All the feuds of countless generations all the hatreds and cruelties of their narrow history, all the memories of ill-usage and persecution were to be purged that day. At last man was to be supreme, and the man-beast to find forever his allotted place. Fly as they would, the fugitives were too slow to escape from the active savages, and from every side in the tangled woods we heard the exultant yells, the twanging of bows, and the crash and thud as ape-men were brought down from their hiding-places in the trees. I was following the others, when I found that Lord John and Challenger had come across to join us. "'It's over,' said Lord John. "'I think we can leave the tidying up to them. Perhaps the less we see of it, the better we shall sleep.' Challenger's eyes were shining with the lust of slaughter. "'We have been privileged.' He cried, strutting about like a gamecock, to be present at one of the typical decisive battles of history, the battles which have determined the fate of the world. What, my friends, is the conquest of one nation by another? It is meaningless. Each produces the same result. But these fierce fights, when in the dawn of the ages the cave-dwellers held their own against the tiger-folk, or the elephants first found that they had a master, Those were the real conquests, the victories that count. By this strange turn of fate, we have seen, and helped to decide, even, such a contest. Now, upon this plateau, the future must ever be for man." It needed a robust faith in the end to justify such tragic means. As we advanced together through the woods, we found the ape-men lying thick, transfixed with spears or arrows. Here and there, a little group of shattered Indians marked where one of the anthropoids had turned to bay and sold his life dearly. Always in front of us, we heard the yelling and roaring which showed the direction of the pursuit. The ape-men had been driven back to their city. They had made a last stand there. Once again they had been broken, and now we were in time to see the final fearful scene of all." some eighty or a hundred males, the last survivors, had been driven across that same little clearing which led to the edge of the cliff, the scene of our own exploit two days before. As we arrived, the Indians, a semicircle of spearmen, had closed in on them, and in a minute it was over. Thirty or forty died where they stood. The others, screaming and clawing, were thrust over the precipice, and went hurtling down, as their prisoners had of old, onto the sharp bamboos six hundred feet below. It was as Challenger had said, and the reign of man was assured forever in Maple-White land. The males were exterminated, Ape Town was destroyed, the females and young were driven away to live in bondage, and the long rivalry of untold centuries had reached its bloody end. For us, the victory brought much advantage once again we were able to visit our camp and get at our stores. Once more, also, we were able to communicate with Zambo, who had been terrified by the spectacle from afar of an avalanche of apes falling from the edge of the cliff. "'Come away, masses, come away!' he cried, his eyes starting from his head. "'The devil get you sure if you stay up there!' "'It is the voice of sanity,' said Summerlee, with conviction. "'We have had adventures enough.' and they are neither suitable to our character or our position. I hold you to your word, challenger. From now onwards, you devote your energies to getting us out of this horrible country, and back once more to civilization." End of
1: chapter 14
0: Chapter 15 of the Lost World. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Our eyes have seen great wonders. I write this from day to day, but I trust that before I come to the end of it, I may be able to say that the light shines at last through our clouds. We are held here with no clear means of making our escape, and bitterly we chafe against it. Yet I can well imagine that the day may come when we may be glad that we were kept, against our will, to see something more of the wonders of this singular place, and of the creatures who inhabit it." The victory of the Indians, and the annihilation of the ape-men, marked the turning-point of our fortunes. From then onwards we were in truth masters of the plateau, for the natives looked upon us with a mixture of fear and gratitude since by our strange powers we had aided them to destroy their hereditary foe. For their own sakes, they would, perhaps, be glad to see the departure of such formidable and incalculable people, but they have not, themselves, suggested any way by which we may reach the plains below. There had been, so far as we could follow their signs, a tunnel by which the place could be approached, the lower exit of which we had seen from below. By this, no doubt, both ape-men and Indians had at different epochs reached the top, and Maple White, with his companion, had taken the same way. Only the year before, however, there had been a terrific earthquake, and the upper end of the tunnel had fallen in, and completely disappeared. The Indians now could only shake their heads and shrug their shoulders, when we expressed by signs our desire to descend. It may be that they cannot but it may also be that they will not help us to get away." At the end of the victorious campaign, the surviving ape-folk were driven across the plateau—their wailings were horrible—and established in the neighbourhood of the Indian Caves, where they would, from now onwards, be a servile race under the eyes of their masters. It was a rude, raw, primeval version of the Jews in Babylon, or the Israelites in Egypt. At night, we could hear from amid the trees the long-drawn cry, as some primitive Ezekiel mourned for fallen greatness, and recalled the departed glories of Apetown. Hewers of wood, and drawers of water, such were they from now onwards. We had returned across the plateau with our allies two days after the battle, and made our camp at the foot of their cliffs. They would have had us share their caves with them, but Lord John would by no means consent to it, considering that to do so would put us in their power if they were treacherously disposed. We kept our independence, therefore, and had our weapons ready for any emergency, while preserving the most friendly relations. We also continually visited their caves, which were most remarkable places, though whether made by man or by nature we have never been able to determine. They were all on one stratum, hollowed out of some soft rock, which lay between the volcanic basalt forming the ruddy cliffs above them, and the hard granite which formed their base. The openings were about eighty feet above the ground, and were led up to by long stone stairs, so narrow and steep that no large animal could mount them. Inside they were warm and dry, running in straight passages of varying length into the side of the hill, with smooth grey walls decorated with many excellent pictures, done with charred sticks, and representing the various animals of the plateau. If every living thing were swept from the country, the future explorer would find upon the walls of these caves ample evidence of the strange fauna, the dinosaurs, iguanodons, and fish-lizards, which had lived so recently upon earth. Since we had learned that the large iguanodons were kept as tame herds by their owners, And were simply walking meat stores, we had conceived that man, even with his primitive weapons, had established his ascendancy upon the plateau. We were soon to discover that it was not so, and that he was still there upon tolerance. It was on the third day after our forming our camp near the Indian caves that the tragedy occurred. Challenger and Summerlee had gone off together that day to the lake, where some of the natives, under their direction, were engaged in harpooning specimens of the great lizards. Lord John and I had remained in our camp, while a number of the Indians were scattered about upon the grassy slope in front of the caves, engaged in different ways. Suddenly there was a shrill cry of alarm, and with the word Stoa resounding from a hundred tongues. From every side men, women, and children were rushing wildly for shelter, swarming up the staircases and into the caves in a mad stampede. Looking up, we could see them waving their arms from the rocks above, and beckoning us to join them in their refuge. We had both seized our magazine rifles, and ran out to see what the danger could be. Suddenly, from the near belt of trees, there broke forth a group of twelve or fifteen Indians running for their lives, and at their very heels, two of those frightful monsters which had disturbed our camp, and pursued me upon my solitary journey. In shape, they were like horrible toads and moved in a succession of springs, but in size they were of an incredible bulk, larger than the largest elephant. We had never before seen them save at night, and indeed they are nocturnal animals, save when disturbed in their lairs, as these had been. We now stood amazed at the sight, for their blotched and warty skins were of a curious fish-like iridescence, and the sunlight struck them with an ever-varying rainbow bloom as they moved. We had little time to watch them, however, for in an instant they had overtaken the fugitives, and were making a dire slaughter among them. Their method was to fall forward with their full weight upon each in turn, leaving them crushed and mangled, to bound on after the others. The wretched Indians screamed with terror, but were helpless, run as they would, before the relentless purpose and horrible activity of these monstrous creatures. One after another they went down, and there were not half a dozen surviving by the time my companion and I could come to their help. But our aid was of little avail, and only involved us in the same peril. At the range of a couple of hundred yards, we emptied our magazines, firing bullet after bullet into the beasts, but with no more effect than if we were pelting them with pellets of paper. Their slow, reptilian natures cared nothing for wounds, and the springs of their lives with no special brain-centre, but scattered throughout their spinal cords, could not be tapped by any modern weapons. The most that we could do was to check their progress, by distracting their attention with the flash and roar of our guns, and so to give both the natives and ourselves time to reach the steps which led to safety. But where the conical explosive bullets of the twentieth century were of no avail, the poisoned arrows of the natives dipped in the juice of Strophanthus. And steeped afterwards in decayed carrion, could succeed. Such arrows were of little avail to the hunter who attacked the beast, because their action in that torpid circulation was slow, and before its powers failed it, could certainly overtake and slay its assailant. But now, as the two monsters hounded us to the very foot of the stairs, a drift of darts came whistling from every chink in the cliff above them. In a minute they were feathered with them, and yet with no sign of pain, They clawed and slobbered with impotent rage at the steps which led them to their victims, mounting clumsily up for a few yards, and then sliding down again to the ground. But at last the poison worked. One of them gave a deep, grumbling groan, and dropped his huge squat head onto the earth. The other bounded round in an eccentric circle, with shrill wailing cries and then lying down writhed in agony for some minutes before it also stiffened and lay still. With yells of triumph the Indians came flocking down from their caves and danced a frenzied dance of victory round the dead bodies, in mad joy that two more of the most dangerous of all their enemies had been slain. That night they cut up and removed the bodies, not to eat, for the poison was still active, but lest they should breed a pestilence, The great reptilian hearts, however, each as large as a cushion, still lay there, beating slowly and steadily, with a gentle rise and fall, in horrible, independent life. It was only on the third day that the ganglia ran down, and the dreadful things were still. Some day, when I have a better desk than a meat tin, and more helpful tools than a worn stub of pencil and a last-tattered notebook, i will write some fuller account of the acala indians of our life amongst them and of the glimpses which we had of the strange conditions of wondrous maple white land memory at least will never fail me for so long as the breath of life is in me every hour and every action of that period will stand out as hard and clear as do the first strange happenings of our childhood no new impressions could efface those which are so deeply cut When the time comes, I will describe that wondrous moonlit night upon the great lake, when a young ichthyosaurus, a strange creature, half-seal, half-fish, to look at, with bone-covered eyes on each side of his snout, and a third eye fixed upon the top of his head, was entangled in an Indian net, and nearly upset our canoe before we towed it ashore. The same night that a green water-snake shot out from the rushes, and carried off in its coils the steersman of Challenger's canoe. I will tell, too, of the great nocturnal white thing—to this day we do not know whether it was beast or reptile—which lived in a vile swamp to the east of the lake, and flitted about with a faint phosphorescent glimmer in the darkness. The Indians were so terrified at it, that they would not go near the place, and though we twice made expeditions, and saw it each time, we could not make our way through the deep marsh in which it lived. I can only say that it seemed to be larger than a cow, and had the strangest musky odour. I will tell also of the huge bird which chased Challenger to the shelter of the rocks one day-a great running bird, far taller than an ostrich, with a vulture-like neck and cruel head which made it a walking death. As Challenger climbed to safety, one dart of that savage curving beak shore off the heel of his boot as if it had been cut with a chisel, this time, at least, modern weapons prevailed, and the great creature, twelve feet from head to foot, Phooracus, its name, according to our panting but exultant professor, went down before Lord Roxton's rifle, in a flurry of waving feathers and kicking limbs, with two remorseless yellow eyes glaring up from the midst of it. May I live to see that flattened vicious skull in its own niche amid the trophies of the Albany. Finally. I will assuredly give some account of the Toxodon, the giant ten-foot guinea-pig with projecting chiselled teeth, which we killed as it drank in the grey of the morning by the side of the lake. All this I shall some day write at fuller length, and amidst these more stirring days I would tenderly sketch in these lovely summer evenings, when, with the deep blue sky above us, we lay in good comradeship among the long grasses by the wood, had marvelled at the strange fowl that swept over us, and the quaint new creatures which crept from their burrows to watch us, while above us the boughs of the bushes were heavy with luscious fruit, and below us strange and lovely flowers peeped at us from among the herbage. Or those long moonlit nights when we lay out upon the shimmering surface of the great lake, and watched with wonder and awe the huge circles rippling out from the sudden splash of some fantastic monster or the greenish gleam, far down in the deep water, of some strange creature upon the confines of darkness. These are the scenes which my mind and my pen will dwell upon in every detail at some future day. But, you will ask, why these experiences, and why this delay, when you and your comrades should have been occupied day and night in the devising of some means by which you could return to the outer world? My answer is, that there was not one of us who was not working for this end, but that our work had been in vain. One fact we had very speedily discovered. The Indians would do nothing to help us. In every other way they were our friends, one might also say our devoted slaves, but when it was suggested that they should help us to make and carry a plank which would bridge the chasm, or, when we wished to get from them thongs of leather or liana, to weave ropes which might help us, we were met by a good-humoured but an invincible refusal. They would smile, twinkle their eyes, shake their heads, and there was the end of it. Even the old chief met us with the same obstinate denial, and it was only Maritas, the youngster whom we had saved, who looked wistfully at us, and told us by his gestures that he was grieved for our thwarted wishes. Ever since their crowning triumph with the ape-men, they had looked upon us as supermen, who bore victory in the tubes of strange weapons, and they believed that so long as we remained with them, good fortune would be theirs. A little red-skinned wife and a cave of our own were freely offered to each of us, if we would but forget our own people and dwell forever upon the plateau. So far, all had been kindly, however far apart our desires might be. But we felt well assured that our actual plans of a descent must be kept secret, for we had reason to fear that at the last they might try to hold us by force. In spite of the danger from dinosaurs, which is not great save at night, for, as I may have said before, they are mostly nocturnal in their habits, I have twice in the last three weeks been over to our old camp, in order to see our negro, who still kept watch and ward below the cliff. My eyes strained eagerly across the great plain, in the hope of seeing afar off the help for which we had prayed, but the long, cactus-strewn levels still stretched away, empty and bare, to the distant line of the cane "'They will soon come now, massa Malone, before another week pass—Indian, come back, and bring rope, and fetch you down!' Such was the cheery cry of our excellent Zambo. I had one strange experience as I came from this second visit, which had involved my being away for a night from my companions. I was returning along the well-remembered route, and had reached a spot within a mile or so of the Marsh of the Pterodactyls, when I saw an extraordinary object approaching me. It was a man who walked inside a framework made of bent canes, so that he was enclosed on all sides in a bell-shaped cage. As I drew nearer. I was more amazed still, to see that it was Lord John Roxton. When he saw me, he slipped from under his curious protection, and came towards me, laughing, and yet, as I thought, with some confusion in his manner. "'Well, young fellow,' said he, "'who would have thought of meeting you up here?' "'What in the world are you doing?' I asked. "'Visiting my friends, the Pterodactyls,' said he. "'But why? Interesting beasts, don't you think?' unsociable, nasty, rude ways with strangers, as you may remember. So I rigged this framework, which keeps them from being too pressing in their attentions. But what do you want in the swamp?" He looked at me with a very questioning eye, and I read hesitation in his face. "'Don't you think other people, besides professors, can want to know things?' he said at last. "'I'm studying the pretty dears. That's enough for you.' "'No offense said I. His good-humour returned, and he laughed. No offence, young fellow. I'm going to get a young devil chick for challenger. That's one of my jobs. No, I don't want your company. I'm safe in this cage, and you are not. So long, and I'll be back in camp by nightfall. He turned away, and I left him wandering on through the wood with his extraordinary cage around him. If Lord John's behaviour at this time was strange, that of Challenger was more so. I may say that he seemed to possess an extraordinary fascination for the Indian women, and that he always carried a large spreading palm-branch with which he beat them off as if they were flies, when their attentions became too pressing. To see him walking like a comic opera sultan, with his badge of authority in his hand, his black beard bristling in front of him, his toes pointing at each step, and a train of wide-eyed Indian girls behind him, clad in their slender drapery of black cloth, is one of the most grotesque of all the pictures which I will carry back with me. As to Summerlee, he was absorbed in the insect and bird-life of the plateau, and spent his whole time—save that considerable portion which was devoted to abusing Challenger for not getting us out of our difficulties—in cleaning and mounting his specimens. Challenger had been in the habit of walking off by himself every morning, and returning from time to time with looks of portentous solemnity, as one who bears the full weight of a great enterprise upon his shoulders. One day, palm-branch in hand, and his crown of adoring devotees behind him, he led us down to his hidden workshop, and took us into the secret of his plans. The place was a small clearing in the centre of a palm-grove. In this was one of those boiling mud geysers which I have already described. Around its edge were scattered a number of leathern thongs, cut from iguanodon hide, and a large collapsed membrane which proved to be the dried and scraped stomach of one of the great fish-lizards from the lake. This huge sack had been sewn up at one end, and only a small orifice left at the other. Into this opening, several bamboo canes had been inserted and the other ends of these canes were in contact with conical clay funnels, which collected the gas bubbling up through the mud of the geyser. Soon, the flaccid organ began to slowly expand, and show such a tendency to upward movements, that Challenger fastened the cords which held it to the trunks of the surrounding trees. In half an hour, a good-sized gas-bag had formed, and the jerking and straining upon the thongs showed that it was capable of considerable lift. Challenger, like a glad father in the presence of his first-born, stood smiling and stroking his beard, in silent, self-satisfied content as he gazed at the creation of his brain. It was Summerley who first broke the silence. You don't mean us to go up in that thing, challenger? said he in an acid voice. I mean, my dear Summerley, to give you such a demonstration of its powers that, after seeing it, you will, I am sure, have no hesitation in trusting yourself to it. You can put it right out of your head now, at once, said Summerley with decision. Nothing on earth would induce me to commit such a folly. Lord John, I trust that you will not countenance such madness. Deuced ingenious, I call it, said our peer. I'd like to see how it works. So you shall, said Challenger. For some days I have exerted my whole brain force upon the problem of how we shall descend from these cliffs. We have satisfied ourselves that we cannot climb down, and that there is no tunnel. We are also unable to construct any kind of bridge which may take us back to the pinnacle from which we came. How then shall I find a means to convey us? Some little time ago I had remarked to our young friend here that free hydrogen was evolved from the geyser. The idea of the balloon naturally followed. I was, I will admit, somewhat baffled by the difficulty of discovering an envelope to contain the gas. But the contemplation of the immense entrails of these reptiles supplied me with a solution to the problem. Behold the result! He put one hand in the front of his ragged jacket, and pointed proudly with the other. By this time the gas-bag had swollen to a goodly rotundity, and was jerking strongly upon its lashings. "'Midsummer madness!' snorted Summerlee. Lord John was delighted with the whole idea. "'Clever old dear, ain't he?' he whispered to me, and then louder to Challenger. "'What about a car?' "'The car will be my next care. I have already planned how it is to be made and attached. Meanwhile. I will simply show you how capable my apparatus is of supporting the weight of each of us. All of us, surely? No. It is part of my plan that each in turn shall descend as in a parachute, and the balloon be drawn back, by means which I shall have no difficulty in perfecting. If it will support the weight of one, and let him gently down, it will have done all that is required of it." I will now show you its capacity in that direction." He brought out a lump of basalt of a considerable size, constructed in the middle so that a cord could be easily attached to it. This cord was one which we had brought with us on the plateau after we had used it for climbing the pinnacle. It was over a hundred feet long, and though it was thin, it was very strong. He had prepared a sort of collar of leather, with many straps depending from it. This collar was placed over the dome of the balloon, and the hanging thongs were gathered together below, so that the pressure of any weight would be diffused over a considerable surface. Then the lump of basalt was fastened to the thongs, and the rope was allowed to hang from the end of it, being passed three times round the professor's arm. "'I will now,' said Challenger, with a smile of pleased anticipation, "'demonstrate the carrying power of my balloon.' as he said so, he cut with a knife the various lashings that held it. Never was our expedition in more imminent danger of complete annihilation. The inflated membrane shot up with frightful velocity into the air. In an instant, Challenger was pulled off his feet and dragged after it. I had just time to throw my arms around his ascending waist, when I was myself whipped up into the air. Lord John had me with a rat-trap grip round the legs, but I felt that he was also coming off the ground. For a moment I had a vision of four adventurers floating like a string of sausages over the land that they had explored. But happily, there were limits to the strain which the rope would stand, though none apparently to the lifting powers of this infernal machine. There was a sharp crack, and we were in a heap upon the ground with coils of rope all over us. When we were able to stagger to our feet, we saw far off in the deep blue sky one dark spot where the lump of basalt was speeding upon its way. Splendid! cried the undaunted challenger, rubbing his injured arm. A most thorough and satisfactory demonstration! I could not have anticipated such a success! Within a week, gentlemen, I promise. That a second balloon will be prepared, and that you can count upon taking in safety and comfort the first stage of our homeward journey. So far, I have written each of the foregoing events as it occurred. Now, I am rounding off my narrative from the old camp where Zambo has waited so long with all the difficulties and dangers left like a dream behind us upon the summits of those vast ruddy crags which tower above our heads we have descended in safety, though in a most unexpected fashion, and all is well with us. In six weeks or two months we shall be in London, and it is possible that this letter may not reach you much earlier than we do ourselves. Already our hearts yearn and our spirits fly towards the great Mother City, which holds so much that is dear to us. It was on the very evening of our perilous adventure with Challenger's homemade balloon that the change came in our fortunes. I have said that the one person from whom we had some sign of sympathy in our attempts to get away was the young chief whom we had rescued. He alone had no desire to hold us against our will in a strange land. He had told us as much by his expressive language of signs. That evening, after dusk, he came down to our little camp, handed me— For some reason he had always shown his attentions to me, perhaps because I was the one who was nearest his age, a small roll of the bark of a tree, and then, pointing solemnly up to the row of caves above him, he put his finger to his lips as a sign of secrecy and had stolen back again to his people. I took the slip of bark to the firelight, and we examined it together. It was about a foot square, and on the inner side there was a singular arrangement of lines which I here reproduce. They were neatly done in charcoal upon the white surface, and looked to me at first sight like some sort of rough musical score. "'Whatever it is, I can swear that it is of importance to us,' said I. I could read that on his face as he gave it. "'Unless we have come upon a primitive practical joker,' Summerlee suggested, "'which, I should think, would be one of the most elementary developments of man.' it is clearly some sort of script," said Challenger. "'Looks like a guinea-puzzle competition,' remarked Lord John, craning his neck to have a look at it. Then, suddenly, he stretched out his hand and seized the puzzle. "'By George!' he cried, "'I believe I've got it. The boy guessed right the very first time. See here? How many marks are on that paper? Eighteen. Well, if you come to think of it, There are eighteen cave openings on the hillside above us. He pointed up to the caves when he gave it to me, said I. Well, that settles it. This is a chart of the caves. What? Eighteen of them all in a row, some short, some deep, some branching, same as we saw them. It's a map, and here's a cross on it. What's the cross for? It is placed to mark one that is much deeper than the others. "'One that goes through!' I cried. "'I believe our young friend has read the riddle,' said Challenger. "'If the cave does not go through, I do not understand why this person, who has every reason to mean us well, should have drawn our attention to it. But if it does go through, and comes out at the corresponding point on the other side, we should have not more than a hundred feet to descend.' "'A hundred feet?' grumbled Summerlee. "'Well, our rope is still more than a hundred feet long,' I cried. "'Surely, we could get down.' "'How about the Indians in the cave?' Summerlee objected. "'There are no Indians in any of the caves above our heads,' said I. "'They are all used as barns and storehouses. Why should we not go up now at once, and spy out the land?' "'There is a dry, bituminous wood upon the plateau a species of araucaria, according to our botanist, which is always used by the Indians for torches. Each of us picked up a faggot of this, and we made our way up weed-covered steps to the particular cave which was marked in the drawing. It was, as I had said, empty, save for a great number of enormous bats, which flapped round our heads as we advanced into it. As we had no desire to draw the attention of the Indians to our proceedings, we stumbled around in the dark, until we had gone round several curves, and penetrated a considerable distance into the cavern. Then, at last, we lit our torches. It was a beautiful dry tunnel, with smooth grey walls covered with native symbols, a curved roof which arched over our heads, and white, glistening sand beneath our feet. We hurried eagerly along it, until, with a deep groan of bitter disappointment, we were brought to a halt. A sheer wall of rock had appeared before us, with no chink through which a mouse could have slipped. There was no escape for us there. We stood with bitter hearts staring at this unexpected obstacle. It was not the result of any convulsion, as in the case of the ascending tunnel. The end wall was exactly like the side ones. It was, and had always been, a cul-de-sac. "'Never mind, my friends said the indomitable challenger. You have still my firm promise of a balloon." Summerlee groaned. "'Can we be in the wrong cave?' I suggested. "'No use, young fellow,' said Lord John, with a finger on the chart. Seventeen from the right, and second from the left. This is the cave, sure enough.' I looked at the mark to which his finger pointed, and I gave a sudden cry of joy. I believe I have it. Follow me! Follow me!" I hurried back along the way we had come, my torch at my hand. Here, said I, pointing to some matches upon the ground, is where we lit up. Exactly! Well, it is marked as a forked cave, and in the darkness we passed the fork before the torches were lit. On the right side, as we go out, we should find the longer arm. It was as I had said. We had not gone thirty yards, before a great black opening loomed in the wall. We turned into it, to find that we were in a much larger passage than before. Along it, we hurried in breathless impatience for many hundreds of yards. Then, suddenly, in the black darkness of the arch in front of us, we saw a gleam of dark red light. We stared in amazement a sheet of steady flame seemed to cross the passage and to bar our way we hastened towards it no sound no heat no movement came from it but still the great luminous curtain glowed before us silvering all the cave and turning the sand to powdered jewels until as we draw closer it discovered a circular edge the moon by george cried lord john we are through boys we are through It was, indeed, the full moon which shone straight down the aperture which opened upon the cliffs. It was a small rift, not larger than a window, but it was enough for all our purposes. As we craned our necks through it, we could see that the descent was not a very difficult one, and that the level ground was no very great way below us. It was no wonder that from below we had not observed the place. As the cliffs curved overhead, and an ascent of the spot would have seemed so impossible as to discourage close inspection. We satisfied ourselves that, with the help of our rope, we could find our way down, and then returned, rejoicing, to our camp, to make our preparations for the next evening. What we did, we had to do quickly and secretly, since even at this last hour the Indians might hold us back. Our stores we would leave behind us, save only our guns and cartridges but Challenger had some unwieldy stuff which he ardently desired to take with him, and one particular package, of which I may not speak, which gave us more labour than any. Slowly the day passed, but when the darkness fell we were ready for our departure. With much labour we got our things up the steps, and then, looking back, took one last long survey of that strange land, soon, I fear, to be vulgarised the prey of hunter and prospector, but to each of us, a dreamland of glamour and romance, a land where we had dared much, suffered much, and learned much—our land, as we shall ever fondly call it." Along upon our left, the neighbouring caves each threw out its ruddy, cheery firelight into the gloom. From the slope below us rose the voices of the Indians as they laughed and sang. Beyond us was the long sweep of the woods, and in the centre, shimmering vaguely through the gloom was the great lake the mother of strange monsters even as we looked a high wickering cry the call of some weird animal rang clear out of the darkness it was the very voice of maple Whiteland bidding us good goodbye we turned and plunged into the cave which led to home two hours later we our packages and all we owned were at the foot of the cliff. Save for Challenger's luggage, we had never a difficulty. Leaving it all where we descended, we started at once for Zambo's camp. In the early morning we approached it, but only to find, to our amazement, not one fire but a dozen upon the plain. The rescue party had arrived. There were twenty Indians from the river, with stakes, ropes, and all that could be useful for bridging the chasm. At least we shall have no difficulty now in carrying our packages, when to-morrow we begin to make our way back to the Amazon. And so, in humble and thankful mood, I close this account. Our eyes have seen great wonders, and our souls are chastened by what we have endured. Each is, in his own way, a better and deeper man. It may be that when we reach Para we shall stop to refit. If we do, this letter will be a mail ahead. If not, it will reach London on the very day that I do. In either case, my dear Mr. McArdle, I hope very soon to shake you by the hand."
1: End of chapter Fifteen.
0: Chapter Sixteen of the Lost World. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A procession, a procession. I should wish to place upon record here our gratitude to all our friends upon the Amazon for the very great kindness and hospitality which was shown to us upon our return journey. Very particularly would I like to thank Senor Penelosa and other officials of the Brazilian government for the special arrangements by which we were helped upon our way, and Senor Pereira of Para, to whose forethought we owe the complete outfit for a decent appearance in the civilized world which we found ready for us at that town. It seemed a poor return for all the courtesy which we encountered, that we should deceive our hosts and benefactors. But under the circumstances we had really no alternative and I hereby tell them that they will only waste their time and their money if they attempt to follow upon our traces. Even the names have been altered in our accounts, and I am very sure that no one, from the most careful study of them, could come within a thousand miles of our unknown land. The excitement which had been caused through those parts of South America which we had to traverse, was imagined by us to be purely local. And I can assure our friends in England that we had no notion of the uproar which the mere rumour of our experiences had caused through Europe. It was not until the Ivernia was within five hundred miles of Southampton that the wireless messages from paper after paper and agency after agency, offering huge prices for a short return message as to our actual results, showed us how strained was the attention not only of the scientific world, but of the general public. It was agreed among us, however, that no definite statement should be given to the press until we had met the members of the Zoological Institute, since as delegates it was our clear duty to give our first report to the body from which we had received our commission of investigation. Thus, although we found Southampton full of pressmen, we absolutely refused to give any information which had the natural effect of focusing public attention upon the meeting, which was advertised for the evening of November 7th. For this gathering, the zoological hall, which had been the scene of the inception of our task, was found to be far too small, and it was only in the Queen's Hall in Regent Street that accommodation could be found. It is now common knowledge the promoters might have ventured upon the Albert Hall, and still found their space too scanty. It was for the second evening after our arrival that the great meeting had been fixed. For the first, we had each, no doubt, our own pressing personal affairs to absorb us. Of mine I cannot yet speak. It may be that as it stands further from me, I may think of it, and even speak of it, with less emotion. I have shown the reader in the beginning of this narrative where lay the springs of my action. It is but right, perhaps, that I should carry on the tale, and show also the results. And yet the day may come when I would not have it otherwise. At least I have been driven forth to take part in a wondrous adventure, and I cannot but be thankful to the force that drove me. And now I turn to the last supreme eventful moment of our adventure. As I was racking my brain as to how I should best describe it, my eyes fell upon the issue of my own journal for the morning of the 8th of November, with the full and excellent account of my friend and fellow-reporter Macdonough. What can I do better than transcribe his narrative, headlines and all? I admit that the paper was exuberant in the matter, out of compliment to its own enterprise in sending a correspondent but the other great dailies were hardly less full in their account. Thus, then, Friend Mack in his report. The New World great meeting at the Queen's Hall. Scenes of uproar. Extraordinary incident. What was it? Nocturnal riot in Regent Street. Special. The much-discussed meeting of the Zoological Institute, convened to hear the report of the Committee of Investigation, sent out last year to South America to test the assertions made by Professor Challenger as to the continued existence of prehistoric life upon that continent, was held last night in the greater Queen's Hall, and it is safe to say that it is likely to be a red-letter date in the history of science, for the proceedings were of so remarkable and sensational a character that no one present is ever likely to forget them. Oh, brother scribe Macdonough, what a monstrous opening sentence! The tickets were theoretically confined to members and their friends, but the latter is an elastic term, and long before eight o'clock, the hour fixed for the commencement of the proceedings, all parts of the great hall were tightly packed. The general public, however, which most unreasonably entertained a grievance at having been excluded, stormed the doors at a quarter to eight, after a prolonged melee, in which several people were injured, including Inspector Scoble of H. Division, whose leg was unfortunately broken. After this unwarrantable invasion, which not only filled every passage, but even intruded upon the space set for the press, it is estimated that nearly five thousand people awaited the arrival of the travellers. When they eventually appeared, They took their places in the front of a platform which already contained all the leading scientific men, not only of this country, but of France and of Germany. Sweden was also represented, in the person of Professor Sergius, the famous zoologist of the University of Uppsala. The entrance of the four heroes of the occasion was the signal of a remarkable demonstration of welcome, the whole audience rising and cheering for some minutes. An acute observer might, however, have detected some signs of dissent amid the applause, and gathered that the proceedings were likely to become more lively than harmonious. It may safely be prophesied, however, that no one could have foreseen the extraordinary turn which they were eventually to take. Of the appearance of the four wanderers little need be said, since their photographs have for some time been appearing in all the papers, they bear few traces of the hardships which they are said to have undergone. Professor Challenger's beard may be more shaggy, Professor Summerlee's features more ascetic, Lord John roxton's figure more gaunt, and all three may be burned to a darker tint than when they left our shores, but each appeared to be in most excellent health, as to our own representative, the well-known athlete and international rugby football player e d Malone. He looks trained to a hair, and as he surveyed the crowd, a smile of good-humoured contentment pervaded his honest, but homely face. "'All right, Mac, wait till I get you alone.' When the quiet had been restored, and the audience resumed their seats after the ovation which they had given to the travellers, the chairman, the Duke of Durham, addressed the meeting. He would not, he said, stand for more than a moment between that vast assembly and the treat which lay before them it was not for him to anticipate what professor summerlee who was the spokesman of the committee had to say to them but it was common rumour that their expedition had been crowned by extraordinary success applause apparently the age of romance was not dead and there was common ground upon which the wildest imaginings of the novelist could meet the actual scientific investigations of the searcher for truth He would only add, before he sat down, that he rejoiced, and all of them would rejoice, that these gentlemen had returned safe and sound from their difficult and dangerous task, for it cannot be denied that any disaster to such an expedition would have inflicted a well-nigh irreparable loss to the cause of zoological science. Great applause, in which Professor Challenger was observed to join. Professor Sommelié's rising was the signal for another extraordinary outbreak of enthusiasm, which broke out again at intervals throughout his address. That address will not be given in extenso in these columns, for the reason that a full account of the whole adventures of the expedition is being published as a supplement from the pen of our own special correspondent. Some general indications will therefore suffice. Having described the genesis of their journey, and paid a handsome tribute to his friend Professor Challenger, coupled with an apology for the incredulity with which his assertions, now fully vindicated, had been received, he gave the actual course of their journey, carefully withholding such information as would aid the public in any attempt to locate the remarkable plateau. Having described, in general terms, their course from the main river up to the time that they actually reached the base of the cliffs, He enthralled his hearers by his account of the difficulties encountered by the expedition in their repeated attempts to mount them, and finally, described how they succeeded in their desperate endeavours, which cost the lives of their two devoted half-breed servants. This amazing reading of the affair was the result of Summerlee's endeavours to avoid raising any questionable matter at the meeting. Having conducted his audience in fancy to the summit. And marooned them there by reason of the fall of their bridge, the professor proceeded to describe both the horrors and the attractions of that remarkable land. Of personal adventures, he said little, but laid stress upon the rich harvest reaped by science in the observations of the wonderful beast, bird, insect, and plant-life of the plateau. Peculiarly rich in the Coleoptera and in the Lepidoptera, Forty-six new species of the one and ninety-four of the other had been secured in the course of a few weeks. It was, however, in the larger animals, and especially in the larger animals supposed to have been long extinct, that the interest of the public was naturally centred. Of these he was able to give a goodly list, but had little doubt that it would be largely extended when the place had been more thoroughly investigated. He and his companions had seen at least a dozen creatures, most of them at a distance, which corresponded with nothing at present known to science. These would, in time, be duly classified and examined. He instanced a snake, the cast skin of which, deep purple in colour, was fifty-one feet in length, and mentioned a white creature, supposed to be a mammalian, which gave forth well-marked phosphorescence in the darkness also a large black moth the bite of which was supposed by the Indians to be highly poisonous setting aside these entirely new forms of life the plateau was very rich in known prehistoric forms dating back in some cases to early jurassic times among those he mentioned the gigantic and grotesque stegosaurus seen once by mr malone at a drinking place by the lake and drawn in the sketch-book of that adventurous american who had first penetrated this unknown world. He described also the Iguanodon and the Pterodactyl, two of the first of the wonders which they had encountered. He then thrilled the assembly by some account of the terrible carnivorous dinosaurs, which had on more than one occasion pursued members of the party, and which were the most formidable of all the creatures which they had encountered. Thence he passed to the huge and ferocious bird, the Phororacus, and to the great elk which still roams upon this upland. It was not, however, until he sketched the mysteries of the central lake, that the full interest and enthusiasm of the audience were aroused. One had to pinch oneself to be sure that one was awake, as one heard this sane and practical professor, in cold-measured tones describing the monstrous three-eyed fish-lizards, and the huge water-snakes, which inhabit this enchanted sheet of water. Next, he touched upon the Indians, and upon the extraordinary colony of anthropoid apes, which might be looked upon as an advance upon the Pithecanthropus of Java, and as coming, therefore, nearer than any known form to that hypothetical creation, the missing link. Finally, he described, amongst some merriments, the ingenious but highly dangerous aeronautic invention of Professor Challenger, and wound up a most memorable address by an account of the methods by which the Committee did at last find their way back to civilization. It had been hoped that the proceedings would end there, and that a vote of thanks and congratulation, moved by Professor Sergius of Uppsala University, would be duly seconded and carried but it was soon evident that the course of events was not destined to flow so smoothly symptoms of opposition had been evident from time to time during the evening and now dr james illingworth of edinburgh rose in the centre of the hall dr illingworth asked whether an amendment should not be taken before a resolution the chairman yes sir if there must be an amendment dr illingworth your grace there must be an amendment The Chairman, then let us take it at once. Professor Summerlee, springing to his feet, Might I explain, Your Grace, that this man is my personal enemy, ever since our controversy in the Quarterly Journal of Science as to the true nature of Bathibius? The Chairman, I fear I cannot go into personal matters. Proceed. Dr. Illingworth was imperfectly heard in part of his remarks, on account of the strenuous opposition of the friends of the explorers. Some attempts were also made to pull him down. Being a man of enormous physique, however, and possessed of a very powerful voice, he dominated the tumult, and succeeded in finishing his speech. It was clear, from the moment of his rising, that he had a number of friends and sympathizers in the hall though they formed a minority in the audience. The attitude of the greater part of the public might be described as one of attentive neutrality. Dr. Illingworth began his remarks by expressing his high appreciation of the scientific work both of Professor Challenger and of Professor Summerlee. He much regretted that any personal bias should have been read into his remarks, which were entirely dictated by his desire for scientific truth. His position, in fact, was substantially the same as that taken up by Professor Summerley at the last meeting. At that last meeting, Professor Challenger had made certain assertions which had been queried by his colleague. Now, this colleague came forward himself, with the same assertions, and expected them to remain unquestioned. Was this reasonable? Yes, no, and prolonged interruption during which Professor Challenger was heard from the press-box to ask leave from the Chairman to put Dr. Illingworth into the street. A year ago one man said certain things. Now four men said other and more startling ones. Was this to constitute a final proof where the matters in question were of the most revolutionary and incredible character?" There had been recent examples of travellers arriving from the unknown with certain tales which had been too readily accepted. Was the London Zoological Institute to place itself in this position? He admitted that the members of the committee were men of character, but human nature was very complex. Even professors might be misled by the desire for notoriety. Like moths, we all love best to flutter in the light. Heavy game-shots liked to be in a position to cap the tales of their rivals, and journalists were not averse from sensational coups, even when imagination had to add fact in the process. Each member of the committee had his own motive for making the most of his results. Shame, shame! He had no desire to be offensive. You are an interruption. The corroboration of these wondrous tales was really of the most slender description. What did it amount to? Some photographs. Was it possible that in this age of ingenious manipulation, photographs could be accepted as evidence? What more? We have a story of a flight and a descent by ropes, which precluded the production of larger specimens. It was ingenious. It was ingenious, but not convincing. It was understood that Lord John Roxton claimed to have the skull of a Phororacus. He could only say that he would like to see that skull. Lord John Roxton, Is this fellow calling me a liar? Uproar. The Chairman, Order! Order! Dr. Illingworth, I must direct you to bring your remarks to a conclusion, and to move your amendment. Dr. Illingworth, Your Grace, I have more to say, but I bow to your ruling. I move, then, that... While Professor Summerlee be thanked for his interesting address, the whole matter shall be regarded as non-proven, and shall be referred back to a larger and possibly more reliable committee of investigation." It is difficult to describe the confusion caused by this amendment. A large section of the audience expressed their indignation at such a slur upon the travellers by noisy shouts of dissent, and cries of, "'Don't put it!' withdraw turn him out on the other hand the malcontents and it cannot be denied that they were fairly numerous cheered for the amendment with cries of order chair and fair play a scuffle broke out in the back benches and blows were freely exchanged among the medical students who crowded that part of the hall there was only the moderating influence of the presence of large numbers of ladies which prevented an absolute riot. Suddenly, however, there was a pause, a hush, and then complete silence. Professor Challenger was on his feet. His appearance and manner are particularly arresting, and as he raised his hand for order, the whole audience settled down expectantly to give him a hearing. It will be within the recollection of many present, Said Professor Challenger, that similar foolish and unmannerly scenes marked the last meeting at which I have been able to address them. On that occasion Professor Summerlee was the chief offender, and though he is now chastened and contrite, the matter could not be entirely forgotten. I have heard to-night similar but even more offensive sentiments from the person who has just sat down and though it is a conscious effort of self-effacement to come down to that person's mental level, I will endeavor to do so, in order to allay any reasonable doubt which could possibly exist in the minds of any one. Laughter and interruption. I need not remind this audience that, though Professor Summerlee, as the head of the Committee of Investigation, has been put up to speak tonight, Still, it is I who am the real prime mover in this business, and that it is mainly to me that any successful result must be ascribed. I have safely conducted these three gentlemen to the spot mentioned, and I have, as you have heard, convinced them of the accuracy of my previous account. We had hoped that we should find upon our return that no one was so dense as to dispute our joint conclusions. Warned, however, by my previous experience, I have not come without such proofs as may convince a reasonable man. As explained by Professor Summerlee, our cameras have been tampered with by the ape-men when they ransacked our camp, and most of our negatives ruined jeers laughter and tell us another from the back i have mentioned the ape-men and i cannot forbear from saying that some of the sounds which now meet my ears bring back most vividly to my recollection my experiences with those interesting creatures laughter in spite of the destruction of so many invaluable negatives there still remains in our collection A certain number of corroborative photographs showing the conditions of life upon the plateau. Did they accuse them of having forged these photographs? A voice, yes, and considerable interruption, which ended in several men being put out of the hall. The negatives were open to the inspection of experts, but what other evidence had they? Under the conditions of their escape, it was naturally impossible to bring a large amount of baggage but they had rescued Professor Somerley's collections of butterflies and beetles, containing many new species. Was this not evidence? Several voices, No. Who said no? Dr. Illingworth, rising. Our point is that such a collection might have been made in other places than a prehistoric plateau. Applause. Professor Challenger, No doubt, sir. We have to bow to your scientific authority although I must admit that the name is unfamiliar. Passing, then, both the photographs and the entomological collection, I come to the varied and accurate information which we bring with us upon points which have never before been elucidated. For example, upon the domestic habits of the pterodactyl. A voice, Bosh! and uproar. I say that upon the domestic habits of the pterodactyl we can throw a flood of light. I can exhibit to you, from my portfolio, a picture of that creature taken from life, which would convince you. Dr. Illingworth, no picture can convince us of anything. Professor Challenger, you would require to see the thing itself? Dr. Illingworth, undoubtedly. Professor Challenger, and you would accept that? Dr. Illingworth, laughing, (laughs) beyond a doubt! It was at this point that the sensation of the evening arose—a sensation so dramatic that it can never have been paralleled in the history of scientific gatherings. Professor Challenger raised his hand in the air as a signal, and at once our colleague, Mr. E. D. Malone, was observed to rise and to make his way to the back of the platform. An instant later, he reappeared in company of a gigantic negro, the two of them bearing between them a large, square packing-case. It was evidently of great weight, and was slowly carried forward, and placed in front of the professor's chair. All sound had hushed in the audience, and every was absorbed in the spectacle before them. Professor Challenger drew off the top of the case, which formed a sliding lid peering down into the box, he snapped his fingers several times, and was heard from the press-seat to say, "'Come then, pretty, pretty,' in a coaxing voice. An instant later, with a scratching, rattling sound, a most horrible and loathsome creature appeared from below, and perched itself upon the side of the case. Even the unexpected fall of the Duke of Durham into the orchestra, Which occurred at this moment could not distract the petrified attention of the vast audience. The face of the creature was like the wildest gargoyle that the imagination of a mad mediaeval builder could have conceived. It was malicious, horrible, with two small red eyes as bright as points of burning coal. Its long, savage mouth, which was held half open, was full of a double row of shark like teeth. Its shoulders were humped, and round them were draped what appeared to be a faded grey shawl. It was the devil of our childhood in person. There was a turmoil in the audience. Someone screamed, two ladies in the front row fell senseless from their chairs, and there was a general movement upon the platform to follow their chairman into the orchestra. For a moment there was danger of a general panic. Professor Challenger threw up his hands to still the commotion, but the movement alarmed the creature beside him. Its strange shawl suddenly unfurled, spread, and fluttered as a pair of leathery wings. Its owner grabbed at its legs, but too late to hold it. It had sprung from the perch, and was circling slowly round the Queen's Hall, with a dry, leathery flapping of its ten-foot wings, while a putrid and insidious odour pervaded the room. The cries of the people in the galleries, who were alarmed at the near approach of those glowing eyes and that murderous beak, excited the creature to a frenzy. Faster and faster it flew, beating against walls and chandeliers in a blind frenzy of alarm. The window! For heaven's sake, shut that window! roared the Professor from the platform, dancing and wringing his hands in an agony of apprehension. Alas! his warning was too late in a moment the creature beating and bumping along the wall like a huge moth within a glass shade came upon the opening squeezed its hideous bulk through it and was gone professor challenger fell back into his chair with his face buried in his hands while the audience gave one long deep sigh of relief as they realized that the incident was over Then—oh, how shall one describe what took place then, when the whole exuberance of the majority, and the full reaction of the minority, united, to make one great wave of enthusiasm, which rolled from the back of the hall, gathering volume as it came, swept over the orchestra, submerged the platform, and carried the four heroes away upon its crest. Good for you, Mac if the audience had done less than justice, surely it made ample amends. Everyone was on his feet, everyone was moving, shouting, gesticulating. A dense crowd of cheering men were round the four travellers. "'Up with them! up with them!' cried a hundred voices. In a moment, four figures shot up above the crowd. In vain they strove to break loose. They were held in their lofty places of honour. It would have been hard to let them down if it had been wished, so dense was the crowd around them. "'Regent Street! Regent Street!' sounded the voices. There was a swirl in the packed multitude, and a slow current, bearing the four upon their shoulders, made for the door. Out in the street, the scene was extraordinary. An assemblage of not less than a hundred thousand people was waiting. The close-packed throng extended from the other side of the Langham Hotel to Oxford Circus. A roar of acclamation greeted the four adventurers as they appeared, high above the heads of the people, under the vivid electric lamps outside the hall. A procession! A procession! was the cry. In a dense phalanx, blocking the streets from side to side, the crowd set forth, taking the route of Regent Street, Pall Mall, St. James's Street, and Piccadilly. The whole central traffic of London was held up, and many collisions were reported between the demonstrators upon the one side, and the police and taxi-cabmen upon the other. Finally it was not until after midnight that the four travellers were released at the entrance to Lord John Roxton's chambers in the Albany, and that the exuberant crowd, having sung They Are Jolly Good Fellows in chorus, concluded their programme with God Save the King so ended one of the most remarkable evenings that London has seen for a considerable time. So far, my friend Macdonough, and it may be taken as a fairly accurate, if florid, account of the proceedings. As to the main incident, it was a bewildering surprise to the audience, but not, I need hardly say, to us. The reader will remember how I met Lord John Roxton upon the very occasion when, in his protective crinoline, he had gone to bring the devil's chick, as he called it, for Professor Challenger. I have hinted also at the trouble which the professor's baggage gave us when we left the plateau, and had I described our voyage, I might have said a good deal of the worry we had to coax with putrid fish the appetite of our filthy companion. If I have not said much about it before, it was, of course, that the professor's earnest desire was that no possible rumour of the unanswerable argument which we carried should be allowed to leak out, until the moment came when his enemies were to be confuted. One word as to the fate of the London Pterodactyl. Nothing can be said to be certain upon this point. There is the evidence of two frightened women. That it perched upon the roof of the Queen's Hall and remained there like a diabolical statue for some hours the next day it came out in the evening papers that Private Miles of the Coldstream Guards on duty outside Marlborough House had deserted his post without leave and was therefore court-martialed. Private Miles's account that he dropped his rifle and took to his heels down the mall because, on looking up he had suddenly seen the devil between him and the moon was not accepted by the court, and yet it may have a direct bearing upon the point at issue. The only other evidence which I can adduce is from the log of the S. S. Friesland, a Dutch-American liner, which asserts that at nine next morning, start-point being at the time ten miles upon their starboard quarter, they were passed by something between a flying goat and a monstrous bat, which was heading at a prodigious pace south and west. If its homing instinct led it upon the right line, there can be no doubt that somewhere out in the wastes of the Atlantic, the last European pterodactyl found its end. And Gladys—oh, my Gladys—Gladys of the Mystic Lake—now to be renamed the Central, for never shall she have immortality through me." Did I not always see some hard fibre in her nature? Did I not, even at the time when I was proud to obey her behest, feel that it was surely a poor love which could drive a lover to his death, or the danger of it? Did I not, in my truest thoughts, always recurring and always dismissed, see past the beauty of the face, and peering into the soul, discern the twin shadows of selfishness? And a fickleness glooming at the back of it. Did she love the heroic and the spectacular for its own noble sake, or was it for the glory which might, without effort or sacrifice, be reflected upon herself? Or are these thoughts the vain wisdom which comes after the event? It was the shock of my life. For a moment it had turned me to a cynic. But already, as I write, a week has passed and we have had our momentous interview with Lord John Roxton, and, well, perhaps things might be worse. Let me tell it in a few words. No letter or telegram had come to me at Southampton, and I reached the little villa at Streetham about ten o'clock that night in a fever of alarm. Was she dead or alive? Where were all my nightly dreams of the open arms, the smiling face, the words of praise for her man who had risked his life to humour her whim. Already I was down from the high peaks, and standing flat-footed upon earth, yet some good reasons given might still lift me to the clouds once more. I rushed down the garden path, hammered at the door, heard the voice of Gladys within, pushed past the staring maid, and strode into the sitting-room. She was seated in a low settee under the shaded standard lamp by the piano. In three steps I was across the room, and had both her hands in mine. "'Gladys!' I cried. "'Gladys!' She looked up with amazement in her face. She was altered in some subtle way. The expression of her eyes, the hard upward stare, the set of the lips was new to me. She drew back her hands. "'What do you mean?' she said. "'Gladys,' I cried, "'what is the matter? You are my Gladys, are you not, little Gladys Hungerton?' "'No,' said she, "'I am Gladys Potts. Let me introduce you to my husband.' "'How absurd life is!' I found myself mechanically bowing and shaking hands with a little ginger-haired man who was coiled up in the deep armchair which had once been sacred to my own use we bobbed and grinned in front of each other father let us stay here we are getting our house ready said gladys oh yes said i you didn't get my letter at para then "'No, I got no letter. Oh, what a pity! It would have been made all clear.' "'It is quite clear,' said I. "'I've told William all about you,' said she. "'We have no secrets. I am so sorry about it. But it couldn't have been so very deep, could it, if you could go off to the other end of the world and leave me here alone? You're not crabby, are you?' Uh, "'No, no, not at all. I I think I'll go.' "'Have some refreshment,' said the little man, and he added, in a confidential way, "'It's always like this, ain't it? And must be, unless you had polygamy, only the other way round. Y- you understand?' He laughed like an idiot while I made for the door. I was through it, when a sudden, fantastic impulse came upon me, and I went back to my successful rival, who looked nervously at the electric push. "'Will you answer a question?' I asked. "'Well, within reason,' said he. "'How did you do it? Have you searched for hidden treasure, or discovered a pole, or done time on a pirate, or flown the channel, or what?' Where is the glamour of romance? How did you get it?" He stared at me with a hopeless expression upon his vacuous, good-natured, scrubby little face. "'Don't you think all this is a little too personal?' he said. "'Well, just one question,' I cried. "'What are you? What is your profession?' I'm a, "'I am ai am a solicitor's clerk,' said he. Second man at Johnson and Merivale's forty one Chancery lane. Good night, said I, and vanished like all disconsolate and broken-hearted heroes into the darkness with grief and rage and laughter all simmering within me like a boiling pot. One more little scene, and I have done. Last night we all supped at Lord John Roxton's rooms, and sitting together afterwards, we smoked, in good comradeship, and talked our adventures over. It was strange, under these altered surroundings, to see the old, well-known faces and figures. There was Challenger, with his smile of condescension, his drooping eyelids, his intolerant eyes, his aggressive beard, his huge chest, swelling and puffing as he laid down the law to Summerlee. And Summerley too. There he was, with his short briar between his thin moustache and his grey goat's beard, his worn face protruded in eager debate as he queried all challenger's propositions. Finally there was our host, with his rugged eagle face, and his cold blue glacier eyes, with always a shimmer of devilment and of humour down in the depths of them. Such is the last picture of them that I have carried away. It was after supper, in his own sanctum—the room of the pink radiance and the innumerable trophies—that Lord John Roxton had something to say to us. From a cupboard he had brought an old cigar-box, and this he laid before him on the table. "'There's one thing,' said he, that maybe I should have spoken about before this, but I wanted to know a little more clearly where I was. No use to raise hopes and let them down again but its facts, not hopes, with us now. You may remember that day we found the pterodactyl rookery in the swamp. What? Well, something in the lie of the land took my notice. Perhaps it has escaped you, so I will tell you. It was a volcanic vent full of blue clay. The professors nodded. Well, now, in the whole world I've only had to do with one place that was a volcanic vent of blue clay. That was the great De Beers diamond mine of Kimberley. What? So, you see, I got diamonds into my head. I rigged up a contraption to hold off those stinking beasts, and I spent a happy day there with a spud. This is what I got." He opened his cigar-box, and tilting it over, He poured about twenty or thirty rough stones, varying from the size of beans to that of chestnuts, on the table. "'Perhaps you think I should have told you then?' "'Well, so I should. Only I know there are a lot of traps for the unwary, and that stones may be of any size and yet of little value, where colour and consistency are clean off. Therefore, I brought them back.' and on the first day at home I took one round to Spinks, and asked him to have it roughly cut and valued. He took a pill-box from his pocket, and spilled out of it a beautiful glittering diamond, one of the finest stones that I have ever seen. "'That's the result,' said he. He prices the lot at a minimum of two hundred thousand pounds. Of course, it is fair shares between us.' I won't hear of anything else, well, Challenger. What will you do with your fifty thousand if you really persist in your generous view, said the professor? I should found a private museum which has long been one of my dreams, and you, Summerlee, I would retire from teaching and so find time for my final classification of the chalk fossils. I'll use my own said Lord John Roxton, in fitting a well-formed expedition, and having another look at the dear old plateau. As to you, young fellow, you, of course, will be spending yours in getting married. "'Not just yet,' said I, with a rueful smile. "'I think, if you will have me, that I would rather go with you.' Lord Roxton said nothing, but a brown hand was stretched out to me, across the table. End of the Lost World by Sir
1: Arthur Conan Doyle